Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome, everyone. Um, well, it's interesting to be here at a time where Taiwan's not the one causing all the headlines. It's actually Hong Kong this morning. That's keeping everyone busy. Um, but I appreciate you coming out. What's, what's turning out to be really a year-long um, celebration of the Taiwan Relations Act and uh, looking at all its various aspects and, uh, and what we can do in Washington can, to continue to su- support it and make the, make the most of it. Uh, today, what we wanted to do is take a step back and um, and look at where things are in U.S.-Taiwan relations, uh, especially in light of the TRA, and to see where we're headed uh, in the relationship. We're very pleased and honored to, to help us do that. We have with us Dr. Xu Shen Xu, um, Deputy Minister for Foreign Affairs, a post he's held since July 2018. Uh, previously, Xu Shen was president of the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy, he was there over two years where we worked together. In fact, we just did a program last year together while you were, while you were still there. Uh, before that, he was associate research fellow at Academia Sinica in Taipei from 2003 to 2017. Dr. Xu received his BA in political science from Taiwan, uh, National Taiwan University and an MA and PhD in political science from Columbia uh, University. Uh, so with that, I'm just going to turn it on to turn it over to Sushen. He'll get us started, and then uh, and then we're going to do this a little bit differently in the in the panel discussions. And I'll point that out when we get there. But with no further ado, let me turn it over to the deputy foreign minister. Director Luman, uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Uh, it is an honor and a pleasure to attend today's seminar on Taiwan-U.S. relations. I would like to thank Director Luman and the Heritage Foundation to invite me uh, to deliver a speech here. I always feel intellectually thrilled to have the chance to be enlightened by different opinions from discussions and debates with friends and partners in Washington, D.C. I very much cherish this opportunity to exchange views on the current state and the future outlook for the Taiwan-U.S. partnership, particularly against the fast-changing U.S.-China relations. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the enactment of the Taiwan Relations Act. To commemorate this milestone, We have already held several events with the Heritage Foundation over the past few months. In January, Dr. Edwin Funer took part in an event in Taipei 
co-hosted with the Zhonghua Institute for Economic Research. To mark the release of the Heritage Foundation's latest economic freedom report, as well as to explore ways of deepening economic and trade ties between Taiwan and U.S. and accelerating Taiwan's integration in the regional economy. When President Tsai Ing-wen made a stopover in Hawaii in March, we also conducted a very informative video conference. And today we have gathered for another round of wide-ranging discussion on our bilateral ties. So once again, I want to express my gratitude to the Heritage Foundation for its long-standing interest in and cooperation with Taiwan. Your support for the country and the Taiwan-U.S. partnership is deeply appreciated. The purpose of the TRA was to define the framework of U.S.-Taiwan interactions. Following the change of diplomatic recognition, it paved the way for vibrant and substantive bilateral exchanges, and has helped ensure that Taiwan has the capabilities necessary to defend itself. The TRA was critical, increasing in creating an environment in which Taiwan could fully devote itself to political and economic development. Through the unwavering efforts of our people and the conditions set by the TRA, Taiwan moved away from an authoritarian system of government to become a beacon of freedom and democracy in Asia. In fact, Taiwan ranked the tenth in the 2019 Index of Economic Freedom reported by the Heritage Foundation, and the 26th in the 2019 Freedom of the World reported. By Freedom House, and from being a recipient of foreign aid, Taiwan has evolved into a donor of international assistance. Today, Taiwan-U.S. relations are stronger than ever before. Mutual interaction between high-level officials are close and frequent. Vice President Mike Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Have publicly praised Taiwan's democratic accomplishments and the free economy, and the U.S. Congress has repeatedly shown its staunch support for Taiwan by passing legislation in favor of our country, such as Taiwan Travel Act and the Taiwan Assurance Act, which was recently passed by the House of Representatives. Two weeks ago, at the 18th Asia Security Summit in Singapore. Or the Shangri-La Dialogue, Acting Secretary of Defense Patrick Shanahan reiterated that the U.S. continues to meet obligations under the TRA to deliver articles and services for Taiwan's self-defense. The Trump administration has announced three arms sales to Taiwan so far, and also approved marketing licenses. Enabling U.S. manufacturers to assist Taiwan with our indigenous submarine program. All of these have delivered a considerable boost to our defense capabilities. Economic and trade ties remain strong as well. Taiwan is the eleventh largest U.S. trading partner and the eighth largest export market. 
for U.S. agricultural products. Major technology companies such as Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and Micron have expanded investments in Taiwan recently. And very importantly, as well, our two countries have made great progress in cultural and educational cooperation. The results of the State Department's Fulbright program have been excellent. Newly launched programs in recent years, such as English Teaching Assistantships (ETA), have further bolstered our exchanges. The State Department has also worked with us on the implementation of the Critical Language Scholarships Program (CLS) program in Taiwan, to the benefit of U.S. undergraduate and graduate students. Just last Thursday, the counterpart of AIT in Taipei, in Taiwan, the Coordination Council for North American Affairs (CCNAA), has been renamed the Taiwan Council for U.S. Affairs (TCUSA). The renaming not only better represents the nature of the agency, but also reflects the growing mutual trust between our two countries. The friendship between Taiwan and the U.S. is very much a forward-looking one. Our ongoing endeavors are geared toward building a better future for our two peoples and for the entire region. Our common aspirations for what lies ahead are underpinned by shared values of freedom, speech,、uh, freedom, democracy, and rule of law, and human rights. As well as the general belief that the free and open Indo-Pacific is fundamental to the peace and prosperity of the region and the world, the faithful implementation of the TRA over the past forty years by administration from both major U.S. parties clearly underlines the peace, security, and stability in the Indo-Pacific, our core interests of the United States. The Indo-Pacific strategy has further solidified the U.S. role in the region and contributed to the forming a grand coalition of like-minded countries to jointly advance these common aspirations and shared values. The U.S. government has clearly stated that the Indo-Pacific strategy is committed to a region where all nations are sovereign. Strong and prosperous, trade is free, fair, and reciprocal. Good governance and robust civil societies safeguard political and economic rights. And a dynamic private sector facilitates thriving business and investment. Acting Secretary Shanahan has stated in the Shangri-La Dialogue that every nation, independent of size, Has an important role to play, and has a responsibility in the free and open Indo-Pacific. Taiwan seeks to play a key part in such a picture. That is why we have made a comprehensive effort to strengthen our engagement with the region. Our new southbound policy, which President Tsai implemented after taking office in 2016. Is an excellent demonstration of our determination.
It was actually initiated before the Indo-Pacific strategy was promulgated. But from a hindsight, the new South Vietnam policy reflects the strategic foresight of the Thai administration. Under this policy, Taiwan has bolstered economic and commercial linkages with South and Southeast Asia, as well as with Australia and New Zealand. We have also enhanced exchanges in fields such as culture, education, tourism, medical services, and public health. Taiwanese businesses, which have operated in these in these countries for decades, are upgrading their industrial clusters there. And through migration flows, our society now boasts many people who have strong connections to these countries, which has given us another advantage in building networks and fostering mutually beneficial ties. The new Southbound policy is thus complementary with the Indo-Pacific strategy. Taiwanese and U.S. interests lie closely, and we should fully exploit existing synergies so that we both benefit from the high economic growth in the region. Our close cooperation will also contribute to fortifying a robust rules-based economic order. Meanwhile, Taiwan has allocated 3.5 billion U.S. dollars to Official Development Assistance, ODA, in support of infrastructure and development programs in neighboring countries and intensified collaborations with U.S. Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC. Moreover, we have worked in close coordination with the United States to promote our shared values in the region. Last March, we hosted the first regional civil society dialogue on securing religious freedom with the, pre- with the presence of the U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom, Mr. Sam Brownback. Furthermore, our two countries have jointly carried out projects under the Global Cooperation and Training Framework, GCTF, related to, related to issues ranging from women's empowerment, medical uh, media literacy, public health, cybersecurity, and environment protection to humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. And we have launched the Indo-Pacific Democratic Governance Consultations to advance good governance and human rights in the region. What we have achieved exactly demonstrates that the enduring partnership between U.S. and Taiwan is a unique and indispensable asset to the region. Our joint efforts in the Indo-Pacific are meant to safeguard the international order that has been cultivated over many decades. This is necessary because challenges have emerged to this order. Authoritarian regimes have eroded and disrupted global freedom in recent years. As pointed out by the U.S. national security strategy, these regimes are using technology, propaganda, corruption, and coercion to create a world antithetical to the principles and the values that we uphold. As in the front line of the authoritarian offense, 
Taiwan has experienced acute threats to our democracy. On January 2nd this year, Chinese President Xi Jinping delivered a speech in which he sought to impose a Taiwanese version of the one country, two system formula on Taiwan and made a point of not renouncing the use of force against Taiwan. In fact, China has lured away some of our diplomatic allies, blocked our international participation, pressured transnational enterprises to downgrade or change the designation for Taiwan, and dispatched military aircrafts and naval vessels to circle Taiwan. President Tsai Ing-wen has repeatedly stressed that although Taiwan does not seek to provoke, we shall not bow under any pressure either. Taiwan will do all it can to protect and strengthen its international position and defend itself against any threat to of its sovereignty. But make no mistake, China's ambition extends beyond Taiwan. China has sought to impose its values and system across the region, as well as stretching to other continents by taking advantage of its abundance of human resources, states' monopoly of financial and strategic sectors, and its entry into World Trade Organization, China has enjoyed high growth rate for three decades. Along with its economic takeoff, China has also developed a party-state capitalism for its economic expansion. Equipped with such an idiosyncratic economic system, China has resorted to stealing technological and commercial secrets, as well as intellectual property, and sought to upend existing mechanisms to retain a leading position in preparation for looming technology battles, and transform those technologies from time to time into military advantages. In interactions with other countries, China has leveraged economic sanctions, military bullying, and shop power to force them to acquiesce to its demands. It has also engaged in the disinformation campaign to influence democratic processes. Militarily, China is intent on breaking through the first island chain. In the South China Sea, the scope of China's land reclamation projects has far surpassed similar efforts by all other claimants combined. And China has used its Belt and Road Initiative to obtain control over key ports worldwide. Its global strategic ambitions are very evident. In this light, we commend the efforts of the Trump administration in taking concrete actions to rectify those economic behaviors of China that deviate from the global norms. Indeed, the strong measures adopted by the Trump administration vis-a-vis China has enjoyed bipartisan support in the U.S. and been widely endorsed by policymaking circles. For example, 
The Asian Society presented a report in February, authored by 17 experts, suggesting that President Trump adopt exactly such a stance. In addition, Senate Minority Le- Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have also backed the administration's decision to impose punitive tariffs in- on China, and stated that the U.S. should not retreat from its position. I suppose, if we want to use an analogy, we could say that U.S.-China relationship has caught a cold, like what I do today, and is suffering from a fever. The current trade negotiations, which are part of the prolonged process of recalibrate the relationship, could of course be directed toward administering medicine. That instantly eases some of the pain and temporarily appeases key stakeholders, but President Trump has been resolute in his desire to identify a long-term solution that addresses the root causes, such as China's unfair treatment of foreign enterprises, its intellectual property theft, coerced technological transfer, and its. Vacillating attitude toward carrying out structural reforms. If successful, this approach will go a long way in reaffirming the primacy of the rules-based trade order in the Indo-Pacific and around the world. From such a perspective, these measures should not be deemed as blocking China's rise, but a bitter plus to bring China back. To the right track, that will benefit not only the world but also the Chinese people in the long run. Taiwan is making sure that it is well positioned for recalibrated U.S.-China relations. Many Taiwanese enterprises are redirecting investments to Taiwan and diversifying their deployment across the region, which dovetails. With our new southbound policy and reduces our past over reliance on the Chinese market. In our economic engagement with U.S. As, as well as other countries, we are devoted to ensuring market access, protecting intellectual property, and fostering a fair and reciprocal trading system. We look forward to the constructive talks with the U.S. on economic issues of mutual interest. And hope to enter into negotiations such as free trade agreement. I'm confident that such an agreement would deliver substantial benefits to both sides and serve as a model for the entire Indo-Pacific. Once again, I would like to thank you for inviting me to speak here today. Taiwan is fully committed to depending substantive relations with the United States. By cooperating closely in all domains, we can jointly overcome current challenges and build an Indo-Pacific that adheres to the values and the principles we hold so dear together. Thank you. Well, I've never uh, never seen a Taiwan audience that didn't have a lot of questions. Uh, so, but while you think about them just for a moment, I got I have one that I wanted to ask you.、Um, one of the areas that the Trump administration has been trying to work 
more than previous ones on uh, with regard to Taiwan's international space is its allies trying to help it preserve its allies. We're in a we're in a tricky situation given that we also don't recognize uh, Taiwan, right? So it's hard. It's it's a, it's a difficult case to make. So I wanted to ask you, um, how does Taiwan now see the importance of those diplomatic allies as they dwindle? How important is it um, that that Taiwan keep them? And and I don't say that prejudicing any outcome because because I think it does have to be kept in some perspective. The relationship you get with the United States and Japan and Australia in many ways is bigger than what you have with some of the smaller ones that are actually diplomatic allies, right? So I don't say that prejudicing either side of it. I'd just like to get an idea from, from you where this fits in Taiwan's overall priority list uh, on foreign relations. <clears throat> So, uh, what, before I answer your question, I wonder if we can have one of those bottles of water. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Let me have some water before I answer. <clears throat> yes, um, as you mentioned when you introduced me to the audience, I came to work at the MOFA since last July and has been uh, around a year. And uh, uh, my minister gave me a <clears throat> big portfolio covering North America and Asia-Pacific. By saying Asia-Pacific includes South Asia, Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, and the Pacific. And in the, in the Pacific, we Taiwan has six allies. So let me tell you the truth. Every evening, I have to read the cables about these six allies before I sleep. <laughs> Otherwise, I won't be able to sleep. And sometimes after reading, I don't sleep well either. <laughs> These allies are extremely important to Taiwan. Extremely important. I have such a big portfolio, but I take it as the, the priority of my job. I can't tell you exact number, but I have made multiple trips to Pacific, to the Pacific. Uh, sometimes... Uh, Sometimes it's short notice to those countries, but uh, I'm ready to, to, to make my trip whenever it's necessary. And uh, we have devoted uh, um, a lot of resources and commitment to defending our allies, not only in the Pacific, but also in Caribbean and Latin America, as well as in Africa and uh, Europe. So um, they speak for Taiwan on various international forums and occasions. <clears throat> um, they defend Taiwan's rights to participate in various international spaces, and they condemn the, the, the bullying and the coercion exerted uh, to Taiwan. So uh, we cherish uh, their friendship, and we, committed, uh, we are very committed to maintain each single uh, relationship with our allies. Okay, questions from the audience? Yeah, right down in front here. Uh, Dr. Lohman, I'd like to follow you up got on a microphone. your oh, question. Yeah. Please identify yourself if you wouldn't mind. Timothy Towell, a former U.S. diplomat starting in the Kennedy administration. I would like to follow up on Dr. Lohman's brilliant question on what 
you and your government are doing to maintain your allies against the communist Chinese uh, energy in the world to take everything away from you guys and isolate you. Uh, and I'm delighted I took notes on the positive activities you're doing in Asia. But I spent most of my career in Africa and South America, where the PRC is vigorously advancing their national interests, lying to foreign sovereign countries to get them to dump you. And you're now down, I think, to about 17 countries. I used to be a bastard in Paraguay. The Paraguayans ask me now, I'm retired, of course, you know, whether the United States or whether the Taiwan think it's really important to maintain these things. How do, what do I say to my Latin American and African friends about blocking uh, aggressive Chinese, P PRC, and staying with their allies and friends of the past? So, so I think part of the point of that is what are you doing specifically to impeach your alliance? Thank you uh, for that question, for giving me an opportunity to briefly explain what uh, Taiwan has been doing uh, for our allies and uh, what to tell them. It has to do what we do and what China does uh, in various countries. Usually, uh, when we build uh, diplomatic relations with a country, there are several things we do for them. We do for their people, not only for the government or politicians, mainly for the people including usually we have a Taiwan technology uh, mission, TTM, which focuses on smart culture. I'm sorry, I'm sorry smart agriculture uh, or, or uh, fishery or aquaculture. And we also have a team to help those countries to uh, advance their public health services, mainly stationed in their central hospital or national hospital, and we also have programs to provide scholarships for um, uh, young men and women to come to Taiwan to study. Um, and on top of that, usually sometimes we also have uh, programs for clean energy, such as uh, uh, solar energy, solar pad. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, uh, and then in difference from country to country, for some country we have some specific projects. And these are uh, all long-term uh, uh, projects. And uh, on top of that, for specific needs, for example, uh, in certain country, if they want to uh, build a, a Congress building or a parliamentary building, or they want to renovate their uh, government building, we are also willing to help. And recently, when President Tsai uh, travel to some of our Pacific allies. Uh, she also signed the maritime patrol agreements with them and donate uh, one uh, patrol boat to each country, which were made in Taiwan. Uh, and we would like them to advance their capabilities uh, of maritime uh, patrol. So these are the things we do for our allies. Uh, and uh, China is good at uh, build um, a huge project at one shot, 
but usually those are done with a business interest rate loan, and uh, sometimes uh, it turns out to be the white elephant projects, such as the, uh, the conference center in Vanuatu. And now it cannot be used because it's leaking, and uh, it's too expensive to maintain. So it's useless right now, but they have to pay the debt. So um, a lot of these things happened. So actually, uh, in some of my recent experience, defending our diplomatic relations in one of the uh, Pacific countries, I don't want to name which one, but the experience was uh, that the, uh, the media, especially the radio station in those countries, had spread it around the message of the debt trap and the white elephant project. So the public opinion are fully aware of those risks. And that has, uh, I believe, very deep impact on the decision of the politicians whether to uh, change their diplomatic relations. Thank you. Yeah, right here in the center. Yes, I'm Russell King, retired federal employee. A little follow-up on the last few questions. China is active um, at maritime strategic choke points like uh, Babel Mandeb. I believe they're active in Djibouti, and that's the that has to do with the passage between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. Also, I believe in Gwadar, Pakistan. I think they've had a listening post for shipping going through the Straits of Hormuz. And, of course, they have a big resource relationship with Africa, where I believe your only diplomatic ally is Eswatini right now, maybe. But uh, can you um, – I was wondering, wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the transnational movement of goods from the Middle East and African region to, to the Pacific and how, what China is doing and what you would do to, 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 to improve that situation. And I was, would think that India would be a good diplomatic partner for you because of China's collusive actions with Pakistan. Um, yes, India is a like-minded country, and uh, <clears throat> we have also um, tried very hard to uh, advance our relationship with India. Um, but India is also an ancient civilization. Uh, when it comes to it comes to their diplomatic strategy, there are many layers of thinking of India, and we have to understand it that way. And uh, then that multiple layer of thinking is reflected in their behaviors too. Um, <clears throat> so at this point, I think uh, we have a great opportunity to to advance uh, our economic and uh, and uh, technological cooperation relationship with India. Uh, that's also what they are interested in. Uh, uh, particularly when Modi got reelected, I think he will devoted a lot of energy in uh, in uh, shrinking the uh, the income gap uh, domestically and uh, so there are many projects small projects that can benefit directly the ordinary people uh, I think Taiwan can be of much help but geopolitically uh, I I don't think Taiwan has that kind of uh, ambition or capability our defense capability, uh, our indigenous defense capability right now are mostly de devoted uh, to defend ourselves 
from possible invasion, mainly, mainly coming from China. Uh, as for uh, uh, the remote possibility of cooperation, such as in Indian Ocean or or South China Sea, uh, uh, we do have ex existing in South China Sea or Taiping Island there, but we would like to. We don't want to follow China's uh, path to militarize the island. We would like to turn it as a as a as a place for ecological and uh, and environmental protection uh, studies uh, or tourism. Uh, but unfortunately, because of uh, China's militarization of those islands, uh, there's a trend that other countries may follow suit. Um, this is very unfortunate. And we understand that the, the code of conduct has, is being negotiated among uh, the ASEAN countries in China, and we hope it will turn out to be a rules-based one uh, with uh, mechanism of enforcement and, uh, you know, having countries uh, contribute to uh, that agreement with responsibility. Uh, otherwise, it's, uh, it's empty. Uh, so we endorse, I think what Taiwan can do is to endorse and subscribe to the rules-based order uh, because... Uh, that's also what many countries want. We want to be in line with them. Uh, uh, and uh, and uh, as I said, uh, Taiwan doesn't have the geopolitical ambition to compete with China, and it's not our capacity either. Uh, but we want China to, we want everyone to bring China back, as I said in my, my speech, bring China back to a rules-based order. I think that will benefit everyone and benefit China in the long run. I'm going to remember that explanation about India's behavior. I'm going to file it away. So next time I'm pulling my hair out over something the Indians did, I'm going to go back and think about their ancient civilization and their layers <laughs> of decision-making, et cetera. Um, okay, other questions? Yeah, go ahead. we got a microphone for you. Scott Harold from the RAND Corporation. It's good to see you, Jim. Uh, I wonder if you could give us a sense of the level of threat that China poses to Taiwan's democracy through its use of social media to manipulate Taiwan society, Taiwan public opinion, and its ability to promote certain candidates, candidates or certain trends in Taiwan society that may be divisive and what steps your government is taking to counter that. Thank you, Scott, for that uh, very important question. <clears throat> Yes, um, <clears throat> there is a serious threat um, to, to Taiwan's uh, democracy. I also mentioned that in my speech. And we're, I think our government is taking that very, very seriously. There are multiple mechanisms of coordination among government agencies to, um, um, to address this challenge. <clears throat> let, me, let me mention a few cases of the, uh, the threat in the concrete context. You know, last year we had this local election, last uh, November, I believe. And some of the candidates, again, don't make me name names, um, they are, their popularity has been boosted in a very short period of time on the social media. And, uh, and, uh, that, the, uh, and that was reflected in the mainstream media, uh, which I believe uh, helped him get elected. 
help that candidate get elected. Um, and later on, <coughs> studies found that a lot of this popularity came from bots. If you trace those bots, uh, their IP address changes every day. One day is in uh, uh, maybe Romania, next day is in Malaysia, and the third day is in Latin America. These are bots, a lot of them. Um, uh, so gradually, I think one way to deal with that, of course, you can you can say that our government can deal with those say uh, uh, social media companies. Uh, I think our government has been doing that, but it takes time. These companies, I believe you all know better than I do, are difficult to deal with. <laughs> and uh, no single uh, country government is able to dominate <laughs> or, or tell them what, what exactly not to do. But uh, to some ex- to different degree, uh, different companies are willing to at least go work together with our government in certain sense. Uh, so we do have some, some progresses in that. And there's uh, that's one thing. Another thing is our legislature right now is considering a legislation or multiple legislations to regulate the, the dissemination of this information. But again, this is politically extremely difficult because when, once you talk about that, then the opposition will come up to accuse the government, you know, infringing their freedom of speech and their, free, their freedom of criticizing the government. And sometimes the opposition say the government itself is the source of disinformation. You have this political battle all the time. And uh, I mean, this is a process of democracy, uh, but I think uh, there are serious consideration in the, legis- in the legislative UN about some legislation. And I also think learning from the example of other countries, this is also very, very necessary. Uh, and uh, we, it's... Uh, it's June right now, but uh, to some extent, yeah, we have already stepped into the campaign hot season. And uh, right now, it's in the process of uh, intra-party primary, so to speak, primary. Uh, but uh, and we already we already have witnessed uh, some other kinds of uh, disinformation. Uh, so disinformation actually like what it does in many other countries, plays right into the most divisive and controversial policy issues. And they amplify the opposition among different camps, not only on the, uh, on the uh, social media or internet, but also on the streets. Also on the streets. I think uh, the difference of uh, China's political warfare uh, from other authoritarian regime is that they have this united front warfare. United front meaning you have to unite your second your second secondary enemy to fight collectively to fight your first enemy, the most important enemy. So the uh, Chinese Communist Party is good at making alignment or, or a coalition with the lesser enemies and uh, to fight against the major enemy which means they build coalitions uh, in Taiwan. While some people also call it the, the fifth uh, column elements, uh, the same. There are groups, social groups or political parties, small political parties that the, uh, that echo Beijing's line. 
and uh, they don't hesitate to take actions, confrontational actions on the streets whenever there's a demonstration. So this is this further complicates the uh, <clears throat> the situation and the coalition network that built within Taiwan society they penetrates very deep into very deeply into Taiwan society. Uh, they have uh, the uh, they welcome delegation to visit China uh, with their United Front uh, warfare system and to invite delegation from even elementary school or uh, neighborhood organization. Um, of course, uh, these kind of uh, political uh, warfare uh, measures is mixed with regular exchanges. I think our government does not ban or forbid any regular exchanges, but there are activities organized by the uh, United Front uh, systems of Chinese Communist Party. So that's another challenge. We have to distinguish between them. Thank you. Thank you. We could stay here the rest of the afternoon asking you questions, I think, but I think you actually have to go. So uh, please join me in thanking the Deputy Foreign Minister for his remarks. Thank you. Very good to see you. We'll see you around. Okay, okay I'm going to call up the first panel. Um, while, I, while I'm waiting for folks to come up um, here, Riley, I'm not sure. There's Riley. Um, and we've got Dr. Roy Chun Lee. Yes, right here, right here. While they, while they settle, I just want to mention one event we have coming up, which is on July, July 2nd. We haven't yet advertised it, but it's an all-day program that we're doing in cooperation with the Prospect Foundation um, and the Mainland Affairs Council that will feature Chen Ming Tong, the, <laughs> minister, of, um, the minister of Mainland Affairs and, uh, and, a, and a U.S. government high representative as well. That's going to be on July 2nd. We haven't sent out the invitation yet because it's still in the works, but it'll be all day. You can go ahead and mark it on your calendar uh, from now. Uh, so with that, let me turn it over to our panel. Um, as I said, we're going to do this a little bit differently than we have uh, done in the past. We're going to have one panel here uh, on the economic side of the U.S.-Taiwan relations. Uh, relationship, and then we're going to go to a, another panel that'll talk more on the political security side of things. So first, uh, on the econ side, I'd like to start with Riley, if we could. We're sort of seated in a different uh, configuration here, but I'd like to start with uh, Riley. Riley is the Heritage Foundation's policy analyst for Asian economy and technology. Uh, he specializes in Asia uh, macroeconomic issues as well as trade, foreign investment, emerging technology, cybersecurity, a, a number of other related issues. He's written very specifically on Taiwan, uh, most notably a long piece he did last November entitled A Neglected Partner in Asia, the U.S. Should Strengthen Economic Cooperation with Taiwan. Uh, if you haven't read that yet, I suggest you go to the go to our website and download it and, and take a look at it. He has some very practical ideas for how we can strengthen the economic relationship uh, with Taiwan above and beyond and that free trade agreement, which Heritage has been supporting for uh, literally decades. I should point out, too, that um, Riley has a bachelor's and master's degree in economics from George Mason University. Uh, I don't always mention everyone's academic background, but in a city where economics is much more abused than respected, uh, I always think it's good to point out when somebody has an economics uh, degree in, in particular. Um, so Riley's going to start us off, and then uh, we'll turn to Dr. Roy Chun-Li, who is Associate Research Fellow and Deputy Director 
of the Taiwan WTO and RTA Center at Chunghua Institution for Economic Research, group that we've worked with a lot in the past, actually. Um, Dr. Lee is a policy advisor for Taiwan's trade negotiations with China, New Zealand, and Singapore, and a capital-based expert for Taiwan's delegation for WTO services trade meetings and on liberalization in Taiwan more generally. He's also a columnist himself, so you can see some of his work also in the public domain. Uh, Dr. Lee received his PhD from Crawford School of Public Policy uh, at Australian National University. So welcome, mate. Uh, <laughs> we'll start with... Uh, We'll start with Riley and get us down under. Yeah. Right. Uh, good morning. Um, as Walter was saying, uh, we, we published this report back in November. Uh, you can find it on heritage.org. I encourage you to read it, uh, mostly because I'm, I'm more or less giving an update to uh, what I talked about in this paper today, um, talking about the importance of the U.S.-Taiwan economic relationship, uh, an area where I think um, – there's not enough attention being paid to. Uh, certainly we talk about the, the diplomatic relationships, either bilaterally or multilaterally. Um, we talk about the security cooperation and areas of uh, sort of strengthening that. But we don't really hear a whole lot about the economics of things. Um, we don't really see much movement, I think, either from Congress or the administration on economic cooperation with Taiwan. Um Something I, I hope we can expand upon, certainly um, as we, you know, whether we are trying to build allies in the Asia Pacific or if we're just looking at ways to confront China um, and sort of uh, turn away from the, the influence that they have in the region. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll briefly talk about some of the highlights uh, imports, exports, investment, all good things. Um, Right now, the U.S.-Taiwan economic relationship is actually at a really good point. Um, uh, that's, that is to be taken in context, of course, with just overall macroeconomic uh, indicators. Um, Taiwan's total exports, imports have actually been decreasing recently. But the U.S. is a, a special case, one of just a few countries, uh, including Netherlands, Vietnam, and um and uh, Australia that are actually seeing an increase in imports uh, and exports. So total trade is increasing. Um, total trade so far this year is up 14% between the United States and Taiwan. Um, last month alone, we traded $6.9 billion worth of goods, uh, which is significant. Um, we've seen a moderate increase in exports to Taiwan. Um, most, I think most strikingly, uh, and we can probably talk about sort of the domestic uh, energy environment within Taiwan, but I think the most interesting export is their increase in export of crude oil and petroleum products to Taiwan, which have doubled since last year and are roughly about uh, 6 million barrels a month at this point. Um, last year, or two years ago, we almost had none, just maybe a, a few hundred thousand here or there. Um, and and uh, there's increasing imports from Taiwan. So um, you know, the the majority of goods that the United States and Taiwan trade, it's it's a mutual gain uh, of capital goods, industrial supplies, um, both back and forth. Uh, so it's it's indicative that the United States and Taiwan maintain uh, strong supply chains uh, that are both mutually beneficial for our economies. Um, but of course, what is what is trade without investment? Uh, building the supply chains themselves. Uh, and this, too, is actually trending upward. 
um, leading to the growth and creation of thousands of direct and indirect jobs, both in the United States and in Taiwan. Um, last year, 2018, uh, was a particularly interesting year, and so much so that it's I would actually consider it an outlier. Um, uh, according to data from the Ministry of Economic Affairs, uh, Taiwan entities invested $2 billion in the U.S. last year. Uh, this is a two-and-a-half-time increase from uh, 2017. Um, and, you know, if you take that with the fact that to date, Taiwan entities have invested roughly $17.5 billion in the United States, it's a significant number. Um, I think this year we're probably going to have a bit of a smaller number, uh, but more to trend. So uh, positive growth of investment in the United States, uh, just like it's pos- there's positive growth of U.S. investment in Taiwan uh, Actually, U.S. investment in Taiwan is uh, $23.4 billion to date. Um, uh, just I suppose as a comparison, you know, we can't, can't necessarily talk about trade investment without, of course, talking a little bit about China. So uh, in comparison, um, Taiwan investment in China has actually been trending downward uh, since 2015, and this year is no different. Taiwan investment in China is down almost 45% this year compared to last. Um, so, I mean, there's there's positive trends, positive trends in the bilateral relationship, the economic relationship that we have, and positive trends in those outstanding concerns, right? So the concerns that perhaps uh, the U.S. and or Taiwan are increasingly becoming reliant on China's economy in a time of instability uh, in both the U.S.-China relationship and regional concerns for the China's uh, economic um, growth. Um, I would be remiss, of course, to uh, not talk about just the relationship between U.S. and Taiwan as um, as partners in economic freedom. Um, we often, of course, talk about Taiwan as the one of the poster child, one of the the uh, highlights of economic freedom in the region. And of course, this year, they have ranked 10th in our index of economic freedom. Um, this gives them a, a rank of fifth in the region, in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, they have a score of 77.3 out of 100. So still room for improvement. Uh, almost everything did improve this year, except for uh, government integrity and tax burden. So uh, there was some shifts in taxing uh, in 2018 that kind of had a negative effect on this score. Uh, meanwhile, though, it's it's doing better than the United States. Um, the United States is ranked 12th uh, overall in the world with a score of 76.8. So uh, in relative score, there's not much difference, but in uh, in, uh, in overall score, there's not much difference, uh, but in relative, it's it's a rank of two. So um, for the United States, you know, we have, of course, um, uh, concerns about our fiscal health, labor freedom, monetary freedom, and trade freedom. Um, I think this one is probably the most outstanding uh, and a concern for us. Um, we would like to see that the United States have more free trade agreements, um, certainly heritage. We've been advocating for a free trade agreement with Taiwan uh, for over 40 years now. I believe um, the minister with our portfolio, John Dung, who is in town, I believe, today, uh, has also recently expressed his optimism for a U.S.-Taiwan free trade agreement. And um, the American Chamber of Commerce in Taiwan uh, is also uh, frequently advocating for the, uh, the, the 
movement, progress on a, a bilateral trade agreement between the United States and Taiwan. So it's it's something that we should continue to push for. Um, I'll go into into a little bit about why I think that's um, less of a possibility. Um, but for now, I think it's important to highlight that um, one of the reasons that we should have a, a bilateral trade agreement with Taiwan is the concern that Taiwan is being left out of these regional trade agreements. Um, CPTPP, or the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, went into force in December. So they can begin accepting new members. Uh, however, I've, I've seen no indication that any of the members have extended a welcome to Taiwan as of yet. I mean, I think they're still trying to consider other countries um, I think Taiwan would be an excellent partner, and hopefully, hopefully, um, they can. There could be some progress there. Uh, certainly, you know, Taiwan is a member of the WTO uh, and an important member of the regional supply chain. So it's it's indicative that um, they be considered uh, for its ascension. Um, you know, the the idea of the Indo-Pacific strategy um, expanding free and fair and reciprocal trade. Uh, well, it's hard for the United States. It's it's easy to say that for some countries, it's harder. Like Taiwan, um, it's harder for economies like Taiwan to um, pursue those things when they are actively being kept out of both bilateral and regional trade agreements. Uh, so it's something that I think we we should hope to strive more for. Uh, get our regional uh, allies, get the U.S. to promote more of Taiwan in these regional uh, partnerships. Um, one way, of course, is through our own uh, bilateral trade agreement with Taiwan. Um, I think it could be done relatively quickly. Um, if we began the process for a free trade agreement with Taiwan today, I think we could relatively get it done relatively quick, um, uh, relatively quicker than a U.S.-Japan uh, FTA could get done, actually. Um, right now with Japan, we have a lot of or at least in the U.S.-Japan relationship, there's a lot of lingering concerns over the tariffs on auto imports. So I think this itself could have um, a delaying effect to getting a U.S.-Japan FTA done, uh, certainly before we move into the presidential election cycle. Um, but that is also a concern that I have for uh, U.S.-Taiwan FTA. And, of course, there is Taiwan's own domestic politics to consider into this as well and whether any potential future candidate or um, well, would be su as supportive of a U.S.-Taiwan uh, free trade agreement. Um, also, you know, uh, I, I was saying this earlier, the administration and Congress are a mixed bag when it comes to Taiwan. Again, um, security-wise, uh, we're very supportive. Economically, there's not much going on, I guess, in, in, at least in the government-to-government -government side. Again, at least people-to-people, -people, it's good. Um, but government, government, we haven't had a trade investment framework agreement talk since 2016, uh, not in the entirety of President Trump's administration so far. Have we had a, a TIFA talk? Um, and, and so one thing that we would, uh, the, the same reason that we don't have an, an FTA is the same reason that we are not having TIFA talks. It's because we get bogged down by certain issues, um, more explicitly the, the pork uh, and other ag uh, issues that we have with Taiwan. Um, so one thing that we've advocated for, and, and 
it's laid out in this paper, again, I encourage you all to read, is the promotion of a high-level economic dialogue with Taiwan. Uh, this is similar to what we had with Japan last two years ago before we entered uh, free trade negotiations. And it would certainly be in line with the Tri Taiwan Travel Act to encourage higher-level um, uh, relations between the governments of Taiwan and the United States. Uh, hopefully to encourage a process toward a, an FTA. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, hopefully we can get something done there. Um, one of the things that we're supposed to talk about, I believe, today are the opportunities for uh, U.S. and Taiwan relationship. Um, I think one area of cooperation or one area of potential progress uh, which is still being flushed out for for everyone else's context is on on uh, emer uh, electronic commerce or e-commerce. Um, right now, Japan is leading this, uh, or Prime Minister Abe plans to take a lead on this at the G20 summit at the end of this month. There's already talks about it um, at the lower ministerial levels. There is consideration for it at the WTO. Um, I think Taiwan has. Uh, an opportunity here in the United States and Taiwan have an opportunity to cooperate in this area. Um, digital economy, the digital economy, which e-commerce makes up a factor of, um, uh, makes up 6.9% of U.S. GDP, uh, in which, of course, the tech provided through, uh, from the tech provided through Taiwan supplies has allowed for this type of growth. So I think it's something to consider. Um, Going forward, um, there are some concerns on both sides. Uh, certainly, I, I think on the U.S. side, trade is the most out, outstanding concern. Um, <clears throat> we are, of course, not just tariffing the countries that we have concerns with, but we're, we're applying tariffs to the, our friends and allies, Taiwan included, much included in this, which we hope we can shift away from and consider more important and uh, other areas for cooperation. Um, <clears throat> The For Taiwan, uh, I think uh, just looking at the macroeconomic indicators that are out there, um, household savings have been increasing but ha peaked in 2016. Um, and by my uh, indications, the population is going to peak within the next 10 years, right? So this is a concern. Uh, demographics are a concern. Um, you know, employment is also a concern. There's, there's uh, you know, Less total hours being worked, uh, or less total hours working, uh, meaning less GDP growth uh, per hours worked. Um, and of course, there are some uh, new and emerging concerns, at least in the bilateral relationship. Uh, one, for example, is the proliferation of the sharing economy in Asia, uh, not just Taiwan, other countries, but in Taiwan's case, I will mention that um, recent regulations regarding Uber. Uh, and regulating them as a ride-sharing company have become concerning. Um, hopefully, though, of course, uh, the administration and Congress can sort of help push greater economic cooperation, greater economic ties with Taiwan. It certainly helps um, if the U.S. can figure out its economic relationships with other countries in the region as well. Potentially, if we have an agreement with China by the end of this year, um, then perhaps uh, regional instability around trade investment can um, can be reduced as well. Um, I want to get to, of course, mention China for just for just a second because uh, it is such a lingering factor in so many things that we talk about these days. Uh, I think most important, 
most mostly too within the context of the U.S. Taiwan relationship. Um, the fact that the Trump administration continues to apply tariffs, um, I think, is indicative of uh, a lacking in strategy against China. Uh, they do have a number of concerns, and a lot of them are right. I don't think anyone disputes the the concerns that the administration has, or the fact that um, being tough on China is bad. I, I think there's no disagreement there. But the approach through tariffs is, uh, I think, the least effective measure to get at these concerns. And so if you want to look at it, you can go on the Heritage website. We have over a dozen uh, variety of recommendations for how we think the Trump administration can deal with uh, issues, just economic issues uh, that China presents. Uh, we don't believe that this short-term pain will necessarily guarantee long-term gain. Um, but uh, at the end, we think you know the president will probably make a deal, and so hopefully things will resolve at that end. Uh, but there are other outstanding issues like Huawei, 5G technology, I think these are going to continue to be concerns and issues going forward, even if we have a, a trade deal. Uh, so with that, I'm going to leave it there and trade over. Great. Thanks. Thank you, Riley. Um, I'm glad that you raised the Uber issue, and I just wanted to put a more general cast on it. I mean, it's not the, it's one company that people are focused on. It's not like the interests of this one company are so important. It's the it's the principle of the thing. It's the ability of an economy, especially one that's ranked 10th freest in the world, to be able to accommodate innovation. You know, and innovation is certainly disruptive. It is all of the time. Um, but anywhere I have been, uh, consumers are enthusiastic about Uber. Yeah. You know, because in a lot of cities, they are hostage to surly cab drivers <laughs> who don't want to stop and pick them up necessarily right. or uh, whose uh, credit card machines always seem to be broken. Um, so Uber is responding to that. It's the market responding to a need. Right. And it's not that we care so much about Uber as a company. It's that we we support an economy being able to accommodate uh, a response uh, like that. Yeah, and then, um, I'll just say, yeah, Uber is not just the, the sole uh, target of this. It applies to all ride-sharing services. Uh, and it's not just um, indicative of anti-innovation policies, but it's anti-competition. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, and, then, and then the FTA, uh, I swear, I, I don't understand what is so hard about this. I mean, I, I could understand... Okay, the Bush administration, they had some priorities in the Middle East they needed to focus on. They, they were in sort of a, a mode of putting off some of the harder decisions on Taiwan or on, on China. And then Obama was generally, I think, uh, you know, in a careful mode with China tiptoeing around it. So I can understand this. But this administration, I mean, they routinely offend a lot of people. You know, and they re routinely offend the Chinese. Why not offend them on something that was actually substantive? If you're going to offend somebody, make something of it, right? So I don't understand why we can't get there. But uh, but I, I can tell you Heritage will continue to plug away at it. Uh, it's only been 30 years, 40 years, but uh, but we'll keep we'll keep working on it till it actually happens. Uh, let me turn it over to you, Dr. Lee. Thank you. I need to get the, uh, the remote. Go, go, go. Yeah. Uh, thank you for uh, having me today, and, and, and please bear with me. I'm going to uh, present my my um, thoughts 
using this very Taiwanese style. We use PowerPoints all the time. Without that, I, I don't really know how to carry on my speech, so please bear with me. Uh, and thank you uh, for uh, having really to start with this panel because I, I, that will skip, uh, for me to skip a lot of backgrounds about uh, the basic economic relationship between uh, U.S. And, 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 and Taiwan. And, and that's exactly my focus uh, will be today. I, I'll be looking at some of the key features for the last 40 years, taking advantage of this occasion to commemorate the 40-year anniversary of the uh, Taiwan Relations Act. And I would like to offer some uh, prospect and, and the possible framework of future uh, collaboration uh, 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 and partnership between uh, Taiwan and U.S. economically. Now, let, let, let me start with the first. Uh, I, I'll divide uh, the last 40 years, 40 years into four 10-year uh, time period. In the first 10 years uh, between 1979 to 1989, I think the key feature is the U.S. The US was um, something like China to Taiwan today. Number one trading partner, number one source of FDI. For example, in, in 1985, almost half, 50% of Taiwan's export goes to the U.S. That is very similar to what we are doing with China. So U.S. was China back in the 90, uh, early, uh, late uh, 70s and early 80s. And that creates a lot of trade tension. Uh, Taiwan's running a huge, increasingly large, was running an increasingly large trade surplus with the U.S. So the U.S. starts, because of the trade deficit, we start negotiation. Uh, for further market opening and, you know, uh, measures to reduce the trade deficit with the U.S. Uh, we, Taiwan what used to be the second largest source of trade deficit just next to Japan uh, back in the, in the uh, 85 to 87 time period. So uh, looking back in history, you find very interesting similarities of what happened uh, 40 years ago and what happened now. Right, just that the, the, the players are different. But uh, trade structures and the issues, the contingent issues, remain very similar. Uh, move, move to the next phase, 1989 to 1999. The, I think the, the most unique characteristic feature of this 10 years is the rise of Taiwan as a kingmaker. That is, Taiwan stopped exporting uh, consumer products and start to focus more on uh, intermediate inputs to facilitate and support the development of high-tech uh, sectors, especially uh, for the United States. Look at the, the table here. You see all the names are uh, remain until today the largest contract manufacturer for laptops, pads, and, and PCs and all these uh, U.S. brands. Uh, um, for example, uh, Quanta Computer was established in 1980, 1988, and it is until today the largest laptop uh, uh, contract manufacturer, and its clients include HP, Dell, Apple, and you name it. Right? So uh, most of these companies, including TSMI, which is the largest independent foundry, semiconductor foundry, uh, were all created around around this time period. So. It is a very interesting uh, period of time when Taiwan starts to focus more on this contract contract manufacturing rather than you know producing or pursuing a brand name uh, strategy. 
And also, uh, what took off during this time period is the investment from Taiwan to China. If you look at the chart on, the, on, on my right, uh, in 1991, uh, Taiwan's FDI to China accounts only for nine, around 9.5% of total's outbound FDI from, from Taiwan. That, that number increased to 40.7% in two years' time in 1993. At the highest peak back in 2010, I think, uh, 81% of Taiwan's FDI goes to China. So China becomes the backyard of manufacturing uh, 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 capacity for Taiwan. And it all starts started uh, sometime in 1990, 1991. And 80% that's in flow for one year. Yes, yeah. yes. So for the year 2010, for example, uh, 81% of Taiwan's outbound FDI goes to one single market, that is China. But that reduced to 40-something uh, in, in, in 2018. <laughs> and uh, what well, Taiwan remains uh, the kingmaker today, you can look at the structure of Taiwan's export to the U.S. Majority of them are intermediate inputs. Capital products, parts and components, semi-finished products uh, accounts for uh, almost uh, uh, 83% of Taiwan's ex total export to the United States. And that's above average. On, on, this, on the right-hand side, that's the average, uh, the structure of the U.S. imports globally. You can see U.S. Uh, imported 30% of its our Euro consumer products from foreign uh, exports, whereas for Taiwan, that accounts only for 70%. So we are not really selling consumer products. We are providing, supplying uh, uh, intermediate inputs. Uh, so that's why I denote Taiwan's role as a kingmaker or a, a, a critical center uh, player of the supply chain uh, surrounding uh, U.S. companies. And in the next 10 years, WTO, I mean, Taiwan became formally a WTO uh, member, which with the help of, of the United States, uh, kick off the application to become a WTO member in the 1990s, early 1991. And, and, and after 10 year negotiation, we formally joined the WTO on January 2002. Uh, and another uh, uh, unique uh, de development during this time, 10 year period, again, is uh, the trade, the intensity of trade and investment between Taiwan and China starts to accelerate. I borrowed this chart from, from your paper, really, just to uh, uh, promote the importance of this paper. <laughs> you can see Taiwan's uh, trade between uh, uh, the vis-a-vis the -vis, uh, Taiwan's trade with uh, the United States. You can see China's trade. China becomes very rapidly, in a very brief period of time, the largest export market for Taiwan. But what interesting... Uh, what, what interests, uh, the most interesting part is on the, my right-hand side, it is a figure uh, summarized by the Congressional uh, Research uh, Service here in, in D.C., indicating that Taiwan's uh, uh, order from the U.S. increased between 2002 until 2017. But the ex actual export Direct export from Taiwan actually remain very flat, which is an indication that Taiwan manufactured most of the 
orders somewhere else outside Taiwan. So we're not really exporting those orders locally in Taiwan. We are, we are receiving the orders in Taiwan, but we manufacture somewhere else, most likely in China. So it becomes the, 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 the beginning and the creation of the, this U.S.-Taiwan-China tri- triangular supply uh, network. Well, Taiwan's trade with China is one of the indication of this supply network between U.S., Taiwan, China. You can say 90, almost 91% of Taiwan's export to China are intermediate inputs, capital uh, uh, goods, intermediate inputs. Uh, consumer products accounts for less than 10%, about 9% of Taiwan export. To, we are not really selling, again, to, to, uh, we, are, we are actually seeing, uh, this is a reflection of China as being the world factory, especially the factory supporting Taiwan's uh, partnership with the United States. <laughs> In the last 10 years, we see the deepening of the triangular supply network. The blue bar in this chart, sorry, I forgot to, because there are two laptop computers. The blue bar in this chart reflects uh, the percentage of products, uh, uh, the ratio of manufacturing location of export orders. Assuming we we receive $100 order from the United States. Back in 2010, about $48 of these orders are manufactured in Taiwan and about 40, 43% of the products are manufactured in China. But in 2004, sorry, this is, should be, there's a typo, should be 2014, 2015, we start, you start to see a shift of the manufacturing location away from Taiwan and move to China. In 2014, China produced more export orders than we did uh, in, in Taiwan which means most of the export orders we receive from the U.S. companies are manufactured now in China. It remained the same until 2017, even though the ratio of China-made export orders are, are coming down and uh, indicating that some of the uh, uh, manufacturing activities are actually coming returning back to Taiwan. But China remains one of the uh, uh, most important location for Taiwan's manufacturers. So, so by this you mean the final assembly? <laughs> when you talk about it, where it's coming from export is the final assembly point. Uh, m- most, many of them are final assembly, but increasingly uh, maybe, uh, uh, you know, in, in the, the middle... Good yes. to the United States could come from China. China as well, yes. By a Taiwanese company for, for delivering the U.S. order. Right. That's what we define as the triangular uh, supply network. But out of all these sectors, the most important sector is actually the information and technology uh, uh, products. 70% of Taiwan's ICT products are manufactured outside Taiwan. And 90% of them are manufactured in China. Right? So we, m- most, many of these ICT companies are now caught in the crossfire of the trade and technology war between U.S. and China because of this uh, structure. Uh, the next will be, uh, for example, electric machineries. Uh, half of our uh, electric machinery products are manufactured outside Taiwan, and, and about 70% of this overseas manufacturing took place in China. But interestingly, if you can see the second uh, largest uh, category of products we manufacture outside Taiwan is electronics. About 
sixty uh, percent of Taiwan's electronics are not, are manufactured outside Taiwan, but the ratio of those products manufactured in in China is about thirty percent. So that means we have actually manufacturing capacity uh, in Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, rather than in China. China accounts only for thirty percent of the electronics. So the, the if we talk about the concentration, the the dependency rate issue, we, we are basically talking about the ICT sector dependency uh, problem that we, we are facing with China. So please, let's meet some of the victims of the trade war. You know, back in 2016, top 10 Chinese exporters to the U.S., eight of them are Taiwanese companies. And most of these companies on this chart and this Chinese character chart are manuf contract manufacturers of ICT products, laptops, pads, smartphones, for example. According to one of these Chinese database, 45% of Thai China's export of computer and, and office equipment are manufactured by Taiwanese, Hong Kong, and Macau companies. Given the size of the Macau and Hong Kong manufacturing uh, uh, sector, I think most of these are most likely produced by Taiwanese companies in, in investing and operating in China. So when if the trade war will be extended from the current uh, 250 billion to the, the remaining 300 billion uh, Chinese imports, you see that the primary uh, targets will be notebook PCs and smartphones, which accounts for almost half of the remaining 300 billion uh, Chinese imports coming to the United States. And if those products are subject to the 25% additional tariff, the, um, most many of the Taiwanese companies from the previous chart will be will be facing a very uh, uh, difficult time uh, in in, in uh, addressing these new uh, dynamics of this. I mean, the broken down breaking down of this triangular uh, supply network. China Taiwan understands many of the Taiwanese companies, especially the Taiwan government, understand the risks, but there are distorted market signals which delays the decision for many of the Taiwanese companies to uh, 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 pursue a, a China, at least a China plus one strategy, that is to uh, diversify their production uh, concentration issue. One of the source of distortion is the China's approach of the so-called two hands approach. Uh, on one hand, China tightened up political uh, uh, pressure on, on, on Taiwan, but on the, on the other hand, China provides more increasingly uh, uh, large number of preferential treatments to attract and to uh, keep Taiwanese investments in in China, even uh, even though uh, based on market decisions, they should be planning to depart or at least to dilute or reduce their reliance on China. And also the One Belt One Road Initiative, the so-called China Drain Initiative, are all keeping many of the Taiwanese investments uh, stop making decisions or to take hedge actions against these uh, risks that they are uh, 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 facing. So strategically, uh, if, despite the fact that there are huge costs out of this uh, U.S.-China trade and tech uh, rivalries, 
the trade and technology conflicts between the U.S. and China might compensate this distortion and, and push Taiwanese investors in China to start making sensible and realistic decisions. <laughs> and you can see uh, uh, our export, our trade with China decreased for the qu first quarter of this year vis-a-vis -vis the first quarter of last year when the, the trade war hasn't really started yet. But our export to the U.S. actually increased 20% comparing the first quarter of this year vis-a-vis -vis the qu first quarter of last year. Right, so we are returning to the 1980s uh, 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 trade relationship between uh, Taiwan and the U.S. So finally, let me let me wrap up with what happened in the next 10 years. We would look at we'll look at what happened in the last four, in the past 40 years and what happened in the next 10 years. That is a question that's been raised and asked many many times in Taiwan. Uh, the the is, is there going to be a delamination of supply network between the U.S. and China? I think decoupling will be too gentle to describe this very messy process. Delamination might be the, the more appropriate uh, way to describe this process, right? A costly and, and very conf complicated, confusing uh, 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 situation that all these companies are facing. So <laughs> are we seeing a thin U.S. supply network? and separate from Team China supply network, what are the roles, what Taiwan is going to play as a, as a supplier in this Team U.S. supply system, and what Taiwan's decision if <laughs> some of the Taiwanese invest manufacturers remain in, in Team China? That's the question that I think we have to start really serious, seriously uh, thinking. There are some experiences that we can borrow. For example, uh, Japan uh, faced similar shock back in 2012 when when this uh, uh, Shinkoku, sorry, I don't really know how Shinkoku Kaku Island uh, incident uh, for two months we see huge protests, boycotts you know, against uh, Japanese brands and Japanese products and Japanese investments <laughs> in China. So the investment from Japan to China dropped about 40% in the following year in 2013. It dropped another 40% on the following year. So 65% drop after uh, reaching the peak in 2012 because of this risk and this awareness of this danger that Japanese investments are facing in China. You still couldn't describe <coughs> this as decoupling though. Yes, so we it's just replaced the a, No, but I'm saying it's still a very significant trading relationship between yes, China yes, and Japan yes. and, and, and a very significant supply chain relationship. Definitely, but we see an act of rebalancing mm -hmm. because of this, uh, let's say, shock or, or this mm -hmm. risk that they are facing. Uh, I think Taiwan investments in China are facing similar situation. Right. So we see it, uh, sorry, this... I borrowed this chart from Jetro and it's a very Japanese style, a lot of information, so please try this to digest. Slide, this slide makes the whole slideshow worth it. <laughs> yes, of course, that's right. <laughs> what what this chart is saying is that most of these Japanese investments throughout China and the Asia-Pacific region are not really using those companies as production base. They are actually investment in Malaysia and Taiwan for, to meet the local demand. 
they are not really exporting uh, products that are manufactured in Malaysia to the U.S. You can see uh, in the first, I can't really point out, but for Taiwan, 64% of Japanese companies' products manufactured in Taiwan are for the local supply. They are not uh, exporting to other markets. They are uh, to meet the demand from the Taiwanese Similar structure for uh, Vietnam, for China, even for Thailand. So they they don't they don't see those companies as war factory. They see those companies as as clients. Right? And uh, even more interestingly is that for uh, Japanese company manufactured in Taiwan, Malaysia, uh, sorry, uh, tai, uh, Taiwan, Vietnam, China, the number one export market if they are exporting. Sorry, the other way around. If they are exporting, they are exporting back to Japan. You can see for Vietnam, 62.4% of Japanese products made in Vietnam are exported back to Japan. Uh, for, for China, it's also about 62%. So Japan is the hub for the exportation of uh, Japanese product to U.S. and European Union. All these companies in Asia Pacific are the supply network of intermediate inputs. The final assembly activities most likely took place somewhere in Japan. Direct export of Japanese companies in China to the United States only accounts for about 5.9%. So they are not, it's very different structure from what Taiwan is doing. Most of Taiwanese companies are manufactured are manufacturing on behalf of the U.S. companies in China and they export directly from China to the United States. 90% of Taiwanese uh, iPhones, uh, iPhones manufactured in China are exported directly from China to the United States. Whereas for Japan, only 9.5% of Japanese products manufactured in China are exported directly to the United States. 64% of, 62% of them are exported back to Japan. So what, what I'm saying here is that this, there are experiences that we can learn uh, from each other. The, the trade war is a shock, but this shock is, happened somewhere else. And in, in, in historical perspective, we learn from the uh, previous lessons. So finally, um, perhaps there will be a new supply uh, network between Taiwan and, and the U.S. So we are, we are looking at Taiwanese company manufactured in Taiwan for the United States, but equally likely we're going to see some Taiwanese investment, increasing number of Taiwanese investments coming to the U.S. manufacturing on behalf of the U.S. companies. Um, and many of these manufacturing activities are based on trust, right? Especially for the emerging technology sectors, uh, trust, data protection, security are, are trust-based. Uh, uh, economics, trust-based manufacturing activities. So we, we are we require that require a lot of increasing level of innovation and research and development collaborations. Uh, it requires attention being paid to capturing the digital opportunities. For example, Japan is pursuing this data-free flow with trust or the FFT initiatives. You know that should be expanded also to Taiwan-U.S. partnership. FTA is essential if we are, we are going to encourage more Taiwan-based manufacturers in Taiwan and also Taiwan-based manufacturers in the United States. FTA is the missing link 
or the foundation for a lot of uh, legal certainties. And education is important. If, if Team U.S. needs Taiwan as the key member of manufacturing, uh, education on science, technology, mathematics, engineering are very important. Uh, I think there should be uh, increased, uh, I mean, an elevated level of collaboration between the U.S. And, and, and Taiwan on STEM education. And finally, Indo-Pacific New South on policy. I think there are a lot of things that can be done on soft uh, software infrastructures, medica medica healthcare, medical uh, cooperation, education, vocational capital. That's all what Taiwan is doing with ASEAN partners, and I think that's also consistent what, with what the Indo-Pacific strategy is, is, is pursuing. So that's uh, another area of economic cooperation that we should be thinking about for the next 10 years to come. Uh, I think I took too long time, so thank you. Outstanding. Thank you very much for thank that. You. Um, I wanted to come back to this issue of um, how the supply chains are are structured. You're looking at it from uh, the perspective of um, dealing with reality, and that's what the companies are dealing with too. It's a shock. They've got people to structure their supply chains in the most efficient way given the the uh, facts that the environment is presenting them. Yes. But there are also people who are advocating <clears throat> for um, – decoupling or advocating for what they call bending the supply chains. And there's so many problems with, with that, uh, with those ideas generally. Um, but, but one in particular I wanted to ask you about is that it's not so easy to change suppliers or change your manufacturing locations or your sourcing locations and people talk about this like it's uh, like it's done like that. Oh, we just moved to Vietnam. Everyone will move to Vietnam. Everybody will move to Malaysia. It's it's all changing. You got to have people in Vietnam in Malaysia, yeah. and they're already doing a lot of other work, right? And so there's a capacity issue in any other capacity issue in the United States. You talked about STEM education. I run into foreign companies in the United States a lot of times who have a difficulty with the U.S. job market that way, where they have to train people and all the rest. So could you comment on that? What is the capacity? out there to restructure supply chains in Vietnam or anywhere else. How do you address that issue? Um, some of the OECD reports indicate that the most uh, challenging uh, task foreign investment facing in Asia, uh, in especially ASEAN countries, is the, the shortage of supply of qualified workers. Right? So it's not corruption. It's not about infrastructure is not about uh, a lack of sufficient uh, financial capacity. It's the lack of qualified workers. So um, I think um, capacity building, vocational capacity building, not pursuing degree type of education are critically important. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, Taiwan's new South Down policy put we have five prime, uh, uh, how do we say this, flagship uh, programs. And one of the flagship programs are actually uh, indeed providing vocational training capacity to uh, our New South Wales policy partner country, especially ASEAN countries. So we're talking about six months, eight months uh, on-the-job training, uh, uh, tailor-made to meet the specific requirements of a specific manufacturing sectors. So I think uh, vocational training is is key. Um, 
Also, let's let's not forget Taiwan. I mean, uh, Taiwanese company not necessarily have to go to Southeast Asia. They can always come back to Taiwan. Many of the companies keep keep some capacity manufacturing capacity back home in Taiwan. They have uh, unused production lines. They have uh, uh, lands reserved for manufacturing, but they have been uh, uh, um, idle, put on idle for the last ten years. But now they are bringing back. Uh, all these events. Um, uh, Quanta Computer, for example, just announced two weeks ago that they are bringing back the manufacturing production line for Dell laptops back to a, a city outside Taipei. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from uh, next year, uh, many of the uh, Dell's laptops will be manufactured in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So, so it takes a lot of time. Uh, sometimes it will be impossible for some of these sectors to move out of uh, uh, China, but Foxconn, for example, just announced two days ago that they are ready to manufacture all the iPhones outside China if they are forced to do so. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't know how they are going to do that. They have iPhone uh, uh, factories in India and Brazil, uh, maybe in Taiwan, but but they they see they they say they are confident that if they are forced to, they will be able to deliver all the iPhones outside China. But the key is, let me let me let me put in this. The key is, we should be thinking about what will be the reaction from Beijing. Beijing doesn't want Foxconn to leave. It will undermine the stability of this whole system, right? If Fox, Foxconn is the, the largest private manufacturer in China, and if Foxconn is leaving, mm-hmm. then the, the whole system will see. We, we are going to see a kind of vicious mm-hmm. circle that is creating, right? So Foxconn. My own view, Foxconn doesn't have the freedom to leave. Mm-hmm. It's not up to Foxconn to leave, right? They have to consult Beijing. They have to ask permission. And Beijing is not going to approve that. Mm-hmm. So that's the fi- final challenge that I think sometimes we, we forget to look into China's willingness to maintain stability. And, and it could be a negotiating position on Foxconn's part. It could be a start of, of course, a definitely. discussion uh, yes. to show the Chinese they have options, even if they may not have as many as they suggest. Exactly. It's a good place to start if you're on their side of the ledger there. Uh, are there other questions? Yeah, Dennis. Professor, you uh, mentioned Foxconn. Um, I have a lot of relatives, uh, brother, cousins in Wisconsin. Foxconn has become a huge issue. It feeds into your uh, analysis, too, of Taiwan manufacturing moving from China to go to the U.S. to Taiwan in the U.S. But it's become kind of a PR disaster. It's become a political disaster in Wisconsin uh, because you have the pictures of the empty field. I think it was last year. Paul Ryan, who was then speaker, Scott Walker, who was then governor, President Trump helped dig the field. Wisconsin gave unprecedented tax breaks to Foxconn. Foxconn then said we're opening a supply uh, warehouse in Green Bay. Oh, and it's Wisconsin companies. It turned out to be Europe, a company with headquarters in Europe and New England. So uh, I've said to a Taiwan friend, I said, well, Terry Go, even with the sea goddess, he might not affect the Taiwan election, but he could affect the American election next year because President Trump's popularity has fallen through the uh, 
basement in Wisconsin over this issue. It's a huge issue because the people of Wisconsin and, and the other problem you mentioned, Foxconn had this huge factory in China, 130,000. They had a suicide labor unrest, so they're trying to get out. But they also cut that from 130,000 to 70,000 in China because of automation and robotization. So the people of Wisconsin were promised 15,000 jobs, Mm. but now Foxconn's saying, oh, we're going to automation, robotization. So the question I have, I mean, in your grand scheme of things, how does that fit? And Foxconn's the biggest uh, employer in China, right? And they want to come to Wisconsin, but the 15,000 jobs might not be there. The promises might not be there. So in this transferring foreign direct investment from China to the United States, how do you deal with these issues like creating jobs and keeping a good PR message for Taiwan? I have to answer on behalf of Foxconn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you see, uh, we always joke, uh, why... You know, Foxconn in Taiwan's name is actually Honghai Precision Electric. It's not Foxconn. So why it is uh, called Foxconn? Because of terrorist uh, Fox style of negotiating things, right? <laughs> this is not the first happening. Indonesia complained a lot previously about uh, this company seeking uh, uh, preferential offers and, and tax uh, reliefs. Uh, and and they 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 didn't keep their promise about investing investment and job creations. Um, but I have to say, um, my, I mean, Foxconn has his own calculation. He has his own way of of doing things. Uh, it might be wrong, might be right. I, I can't really answer for 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 that company. But what I'm, what I'm talking about is this general trend, this macro development. There might be companies as bad as Foxconn, but there will be even more companies who are really creating and bringing jobs, not only to the U.S., also back to Taiwan. Right? So, um, yes, uh, there are problems with, with Foxconn. Uh, and, and but I, I don't think we should... Uh, be, all of these uh, uh, issues that Foxconn create, uh, these sh- this shouldn't undermine... I mean, this, this general trend... I don't think we can stop if the market push, pushes everybody to that direction. I don't think we can stop that, right? But we can correct, compensate, and, and, and you know, adjust uh, to that cause and, and bad things that happen along the way. But I think if, I mean, the trend is a question mark. I, I don't know. Everybody's guessing. Right? Maybe there's no team USA. There's only one team. I don't know. Maybe there's no decoupling uh, theory. But but if that is happening, I think I think uh, I think the best way is to address the issues, but not to start the the, the, the direction of of dynamics. Um, as I was saying earlier, uh, the trend of Taiwanese investment is increasing. So whether you know uh, Foxconn Terrigo actually comes through with his promises or not, the trend outside of Foxconn is increasing anyway. So at least there is some positive. Uh, effects from Taiwanese investment in the United States. Um, Terry is now a politician. Uh, that, that's I think that's pretty stark and uh, obvious. So uh, I think, of course, he 
uh, as a as an individual would probably say things to garnish favor for not just a business but a foreign business operating in the United States led by a former businessman. So uh, I think there's might be some politics involved in that as well, which of course tend to have backlash when those promises don't actually fall through. Um, but getting to your point, just uh, I do want to make a quick point about automation. Um, this is going to be a trend we're going to see everywhere. It's not just going to be China. China's going to have a big problem with that, actually, too. Um, uh, but it's going to be in the United States and elsewhere as well. Um, not to say that it's going to be bad. There's going to be disruption, and it's going to be hard for some folks. But um, I'm pretty positive that at the end of the day, we'll have at least a net positive outcome. You know, we were talking about um, we were talking about uh, you know possibilities in the U.S. Taiwan relationship formally, like what kind of negotiations we can do FTA and, and that sort of thing. And I am by far not the best uh, Donald Trump reader. You know, the person who can understand him the best and get inside his head. But I will dare say this promise from Terry Guo will be a big problem in the relationship moving forward. The, the, the fact that it hasn't taken place. Um, it will be a part of uh, the calculus, I think, um, going forward. And then if, or he to become president, man, I don't know. There's a whole lot of things to worry about in that case. But, but uh, Maybe the money, the money will come in once Terry was nominated by the KMTS, <laughs> yeah, okay. you know, okay. just to, to, to increase his possibility of winning the election. So who knows? Yeah, I guess, I guess the thing is, how can you make a <laughs> promise like that? It's just that was the mistake in the first place. Maybe yes. being so bold to 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 be able to predict where your business was going to be in another couple of years. Yeah, right. Uh, Richard Coleman, I'm retired from Customs and Border Protection. Uh, the guy who was one of the guys that working on TPP was right next to my cubicle. They they worked long and hard on a document that was going to keep the United States in play in Asian politics and trade. And we got nothing when we when we went out. Uh, but my question is, next year, this is a political question, uh, does, does the Kuomintang offer the Taiwanese electorate uh, vote for us? We're going to we're going to retain our traditional Chinese ties, economic and political. Is that the distinction that they're going to carry with them, or uh, how do they how do they relate to the notion of Taiwanese independence from China? You want to go? Like a long question, <laughs> a long answer. Um, I have no idea, honestly. Um, I mean, we'll just have to sort of, I think we're still in wait and see. It's sort of like U.S. politics. We're still kind of in waiting to for the foreign policy side to get out to. Of course, uh, Taiwan uh, cross-strait relations isn't necessarily foreign policy as much as it is domestic policy in Taiwan. But um, I don't know. You have a better I think, answer. <laughs> I, think we've, um, I think we manage whatever happens in the election from the U.S. side. Um, We've dealt with both parties in the, uh, from the U.S., and we could deal with an independent for that matter. I, I don't think it's in U.S. interest or it's really a part of its business to to decide how that, uh, you know, who, who Taiwan elects. And, and what kind of relationship a new government in Taiwan will have with China, I think is also complicated. It's not, it's not just a matter of 
getting elected and then, okay, I'm king, I can do whatever I want now, especially in Taiwan. You know, I think there will be, there'll continue to be breaks on the system and there'll continue to be influence from the other side. Even if you have a government elected that's a relatively pro-China government, you're still going to have pushback. You just have back and forth. You're still going to have a democratic process that, that couches uh, exactly how far the government can go. I, I, I want to listen to the, to the U.S. perspective first. Uh, then uh, I have my uh, own observations. I think uh, one of the hopefuls, for example, uh, Mayor Han Guoyu, I think uh, at the starting uh, phase of this campaign process, I don't think he understands fully about the implication of the trade war. So he is still talking about some uh, policies that are based on uh, uh, rational considerations eight, ten years ago. So when he, when he raised... First, raise the, the issue of this, this so-called free uh, liberalization demonstration zone. He still talk about liber, uh, uh, opening up Chinese agricultural products that are currently prohibited to come to Taiwan to demonstrate uh, uh, to, to 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 be confined in this area, and we can manufacture and become full staff and re-export. Right. So, but repeatedly, did he was warned that this is not a war now. That's eight years ago, maybe it's working. Eight years later, it is not. You are sending the wrong signal. You're telling people the wrong message. Right? So in his final version of this free uh, liberalization demonstration zone, he took out of these Chinese agricultural product ideas. Right? Mm. So I think he starts to understand that the world is very different now. Eight years ago, everybody goes to China Eight years later, at least people start to reconsider the relationship now. So I think they need to learn. While Terry Gao talk about trade war, but everybody, I shouldn't be making comments on most of these people. I think they become cautious about these Chinese. Way. So they have a lot of complaints about the current administration, but increasingly they, they, they become cautious about how China is Taiwan is going to interact with China economically because the war is really very much different now. Yeah, having been around Washington a while, both cases sound like to me um, one of these what the boss meant to say sort of situations. Yes. <laughs> uh, sometimes the boss isn't entirely up on the facts and the dynamics that he needs to be in order to make bold statements, bold predictions, bold promises. Uh, so with that, uh, thank you very much to both of you for, for a terrific discussion on the thank economic you. side of things. Thank you. I sent you an email this morning, but it was Okay, I'd like to call up the next two panelists to talk about the political security uh, side of the relationship. Hopefully not. I'll be okay.
give him some water. Do you have a bottle of water? Okay, well, thank you. Um, another unusual thing is uh, about the way we structured this is usually econ goes last. Uh, it is better to do it this way because everybody usually leaves before econ starts in that, in that case. So, so we got a kind of good uh, audience because they stayed to hear the exciting stuff about uh, guns shooting and, 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 and uh, deep diplomacy and everything else. Um, well, to help us understand the situation, the political security side and the, the prospects of U.S.-Taiwan relations, we've got a couple of very knowledgeable experts on that side, too. Again, one from Taiwan, one from the United States. Uh, first from Taiwan, Dr. Yi Chung Lei. Uh, Dr. Lei is uh, president of the Prospect Foundation. Yi Chung is longtime friend of Heritage Foundation. Uh, of course, our relationship goes back long before you became so popular after uh, Tsai Ing-wen got elected. And people started calling on you more often. But uh, um, uh, Dr. Lei was uh, vice president of the Taiwan Think Tank and executive director uh, on the mission to the U.S. with the Democratic Progressive Party uh, of Taiwan. Uh, his doctorate is from Virginia Tech. So all I can say about that is wahoo-wah. Uh, that's the Virginia thing. It's University of Virginia Tech uh, rivalry. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> we always have them. Yeah. We always beat them in football. So. You always beat them in football. That's absolutely true. Um, and then I'm going to turn to Scott Harold. Uh, Scott is Associate Director of the RAND Center for Asia-Pacific Policy, and he's a senior political scientist at RAND Corporation and also an affiliate faculty member at the Party RAND Graduate School. I guess being a part of RAND, you don't have time to do much else except RAND, sounds like. Several RAND associations. Uh, Scott's uh, doctorate is in political science from Columbia University, where he wrote a thesis on China's foreign policy decision-making with respect to its joining the WTO. Uh, that was interesting. I didn't know that. I want to talk to you some more about that. Uh, I've got a piece coming out next week in Taipei Times about uh, about WTO, and particularly um, uh, Taiwan's membership in it. Uh, Scott and I have known each other for, for several years. Um, it's always a pleasure to bump into him on the on the rubber chicken circuit, and uh, it's great to have him today on a heritage stage. So, uh, with that, let me turn it to you, uh, H. Young. You can get us started, and then we'll turn to Scott. Uh, thank you, Walter, and uh, thanks for uh, inviting me here. I'm very honored um, to be able to speak over here. I think um, this panel basically focused on security and defense affairs, uh, especially at the outset of the uh, 40 years anniversary of Taiwan Relations Act. Um, if we look at, uh, as a retrospect, about the uh, what's happening uh, in terms of defense and security field uh, of and, uh, the Taiwan-U.S. and Taiwan-China relationship, um, after the uh, uh, 40 years of the uh, establishment of Taiwan Relations Act, what we can discover is that many of the things that uh, TRA established and tried to address, uh, the situation is now has become very different. Of course, the first one is that yeah, China uh, right now uh, become a, a huge uh, superpower. And uh, its capability is, uh, in comparison with the 40 years ago, uh, is way is way much higher than uh, it was before. And also, uh, 40 years ago, if we look at the Taiwan Strait military balances, at least at that time, that military balance still uh, in Taiwan's favor. And of course, a lot of younger youngsters probably will not remember that uh, mighty China even had a time that the military balance across the Taiwan Strait is inferior to Taiwan. But it, it, it was like that 40 years ago. 
Uh, of course, another thing about it associated with Chinese rice is that the Chinese international outreach is also very prominent. And that uh, also started to have create new issues and uh, problems for Taiwan. Um, <clears throat> and the third thing is that Taiwan's democratization also created internal dynamics that we haven't witnessed uh, in the past about how the civil military and the civil services and the, the uh, political appointee, their relationship, which also uh, complicated about the internal cohesion as well as the coherence uh, response to uh, Chinese uh, threat at that time. And so I will just address those uh, in, in some fashions. Uh, when we look at the uh, uh, Taiwan's uh, defense capabilities, uh, I think uh, in 1979, when the U.S.-Taiwan uh, no longer recognized uh, ROC government and the cut uh, official Taiwan's Taiwan, and so is the uh, military uh, defense treaties. And during those times, especially after 1982, uh, there was the period that uh, Taiwan believed that it has to rely on itself about uh, the defense. And when we talk about uh, rely on itself, rely on itself is that Taiwan would not uh, be able to uh, purchase the weapons uh, from the United States so for a certain period of time. And if you look at the uh, Taiwan, uh, one of the major military uh, uh, re-establishment programs, uh, such as IDF, and also about our shipbuilding, uh, which was considered to be one of the biggest, uh, if we turn to China's, one of the biggest periods uh, that was made, uh, all of them during the 80s, uh, of course, through the license production. And since then, uh, until today, we started to see another new uh, indigenous development in, in terms of our defense articles. So by the submarines and, uh, and other uh, ship, as well as the, uh, um, uh, the tactical uh, <clears throat> the tactical and fighter jets that probably also do use uh, for the fighter as well as for the uh, uh, the, the teaching uh, the pilot how to how to fly it. And um, if you look at those development, I think uh, what came out uh, in the eighties is that uh, Taiwan developed actually uh, come out with a, a certain talents of build indigenous domestic uh, defense uh, industrial production capabilities. And interestingly enough, in the 90s, when the Taiwan was able to purchase the uh, uh, weapons uh, in a bigger and a more conf uh, a confidence way of getting them, uh, at that time, the, our uh, capabilities and the talents that was uh, established during the 80s started to filter away. Uh, one of the biggest examples is that uh, the uh, engineers that was uh, able to uh, work through the IDF, uh, some of them, they started to depart to Korea and help Korea to build out its own fighter jets and competing against Taiwan. And also, uh, although our shipbuilding engineers, <clears throat> some of them went to uh, Taichuan, uh, that become one of the big ones for building our newer ship at this time. But also, uh, due to the uh, 90s, uh, the lack of the development about indigenous uh, production, some of them they also went somewhere else. So when we talk about the defense uh, industrial, um, especially our defense article production capabilities, uh, one of the um, lessons of what we learned uh, during this time is that uh, how we're able to retain 
uh, those talents. Uh, at that time, when the uh, uh, income in the U.S. articles is becoming more easier, and our military, of course, due to their confidence of the United States, will tend to purchase the U.S.-made weapon rather than Taiwan's own indigenous weapons. And uh, uh, with that environment, how are we able to retain those talents so that we can continue to have a new blood and especially the know-how and knowledge that can continue uh, all the way down? And that could also filter into uh, to the uh, um, uh, civilian uh, production basis um, to um, boost our technology. So I think uh, this is just when I look at the uh, defense capabilities, one thing I just came, came to my mind, I think that's important to address, is uh, the uh, lesson that we learned uh, during the 80s and 90s, especially with the uh, outpouring of the, all those talents that uh, we brought uh, during the 80s. Uh, how can we can avoid that kind of the uh, things that happen again, especially when I, uh, when I witnessed that uh, probably we're going to enter another phase of the major uh, defense production uh, for Taiwan this time. Then uh, another thing that uh, stands out after the 40 years uh, the, uh, anniversaries uh, is about the uh, different about Chinese uh, rights and capabilities. Uh, but I th right now, I would like to talk about the, uh, uh, this capability in terms of international isolation against Taiwan. Uh, we all know that China would like to throw everything, try to isolate Taiwan internationally, but I think right now uh, the uh, Chinese uh, international isolation campaign came out with a new, uh, uh, new patterns. Instead of relying its own money, its own economic resources to buy out individually of those countries, uh, China right now is a, uh, has a strong presence in UN-led international organizations. And many of the uh, international campaign against Taiwan that China can isolate Taiwan uh, very effectively is precisely because of those Chinese nationals. They are there in those international organizations. And through their presence, they are able to prevent uh, any single traces of Taiwan's presence on, and even the uh, friendly allies' uh, support for Taiwan. And one example definitely is the uh, WHO. Uh, WHO. Uh, we know that from year 2003 uh, and onward, uh, the uh, WHO uh, Secretary General uh, is a Hong Kong person. Um, and uh, since then, the, uh, some of the measures that the Taiwan would like to undertook uh, found out that response is uh, way different from the previous uh, Secretary Generals. And another thing about it, another example is that the uh, ICAO currently the Secretary General is also uh, a Chinese. And, um, and not to mention about the Chinese presence in the UN organization where some, uh, some of the Deputy Secretary General or Assistant Secretary General, uh, they are Chinese. And how are they able to control the administrations, create new norms about whether uh, Taiwan or the uh, uh, any activity associated with Taiwan should be addressed? And, and that, that, that becomes a norm. And, not, and of course, uh, just two days ago, the, uh, um, we have our uh, two representatives got the invitation to the uh, uh, international, I believe that's weather uh, organizations. But then uh, just uh, when they arrived, they found out that their invitation has been canceled uh, suddenly. And 
it turns out that uh, that uh, the Chinese uh, officials uh, in the administrative uh, an administrative unit in that organization sort of played a role, played a role in this uh, development. So that right now I would like to uh, just uh, propose, and this this is an important uh, phenomenon that when we talk about the uh, uh, how to address the issue about uh, international isolation against Taiwan by China, uh, Chinese presence in those international organizations and their uh, capability to control the agenda through the administration. I think that's something that we need, all, yeah, need, need to be aware of. And how to address them uh, instead of fighting China uh, on one by one bilateral cases, but uh, how are able to really enforce and the required international organization and administration to really follow what we believe that should be the norm um, of those organizations. That's, I think that's important. Another thing uh, about it is that um, 40 years ago, uh, Taiwan is not yet democratized. Uh, but also, we've, uh, we know that KMT during, at that time was very much anti-Chinese communist. And today, uh, KMT is one of the leading voices in Taiwan to ask for the uh, reconciliation uh, with the uh, Chinese Communists, despite the uh, Chinese Communists' uh, the, uh, uh, tactic and its position hasn't really changed. And the <clears throat> but what I'm going to say is that uh, along with this uh, KMT's change position, it's not about how KMT's change position affects Taiwan, but what, what actually contributes to the KMT change position. That is some, that's the thing that we need to understand. And uh, it, because that will co probably put, could be the key uh, to get to know uh, the kind of Chinese penetration, how effective it is uh, in, within Taiwan. The uh, KMT's, uh, and the, uh, the kind of the dynamics that uh, lead the KMT to change the position. If you look at the early 90s and then the, what's happening after the year 2000, you can find out that in the early 90s, KMT is actually not only the one that uh, oh, it has its position, but uh, it's actually the organization that's that's part of the progressive part. Uh, the uh, Li Denghui, as a chairman of KMT, is leading all the major reform and the constitutional reform. Uh, a change of the constitution did not start from the uh, DPP. It's actually that Li Denghui and his led KMT that initiate all kinds of reform. And whether people agree with those reforms or not, but at least KMT at that time during the 90s uh, was part of the, the uh, forces that tried to accommodate the democracy and even initiate a certain process within democracy and the push for something. But after year 2000, when DP came in, and, uh, and KMT also kicked out its uh, Li Denghui uh, as chairman, and KMT take a dramatic turn instead of... Uh, embracing the whole democratic process. Uh, it seems to me that KMT leadership believed that the democratic process at this time uh, for, and caused their uh, uh, election, or at least the, the Li Denghui, his embrace of the democratic reform and to a certain, and somehow that caused their election. And uh, their position about how to accommodate and embrace the uh, Taiwanese identity come to the halt and uh, had a dramatically uh, 180 degrees U-turn. And by going back to the original route and the Jiang Kai-shek, Jiang Jingguo's line about China and how the Taiwan should be part of China. And so that leads to all the uh, future development, uh, further development as we uh, uh, discovered, uh, as we witness now. Uh, 
one of the leading uh, watershed moment definitely is the year 2005 when the KMT lead uh, have a delegation to China, first by its vice chairman, um, uh, Jiang Bingkun. And when he led a delegation to China, precisely after two weeks of the uh, uh, Taiwan's uh, big rally against uh, anti-secession law. And then the later on, the one month later is Lian Zhan. So, uh, so I think it is the interesting, uh, the, the, the research needs to be done about uh, why the street decision by KMT leadership uh, choose to go through that way. Because that opens a lot about the KMT's uh, uh, later on decisions as well as the how they treat China, as well as the relationship with the United States. And uh, that also opens up another very important question. I think that's for Taiwanese uh, people to really hammer out. That is, uh, with the KMT in the past during the martial law period dominated uh, our military, our security and uh, security services, our intelligence services. Um, when the KMT was changing uh, its position, how much of those influence and uh, on them is uh, continue all the way through the military and intelligence security services? Those are very important organs for uh, to safeguard Taiwan national security. How would that uh, also study to uh, affect uh, the institutional uh, management regarding the Taiwan-China relations? Uh, would that uh, and how would they uh, start to interpret? about the relationship between the U.S.-China and the U.S.-Taiwan. I think that is another area as for now when we try to deal with the Chinese, uh, the so-called the, uh, influence operation penetration that needs to be uh, thoroughly and uh, objectively uh, understood. So I'm just going to stop here because I know this Dahuro has a lot of uh, very good insights regarding how Taiwan needs to be done uh, for its own uh, defense reform. So thank you very much. Thank you, Yijun. Thank you, Walter. It's uh, good to see you again, and it's um, always a pleasure to learn that uh, that where we've been bumping into each other is on the rubber chicken circuit. That's a new one for me. I'll take that home. Uh, and I'll take it home and give it to my eight-year-old. Today is his birthday, and so that's a sign of how much the U.S.-Taiwan relationship and my friendship and respect for Walter uh, matter to me that I will take time today to uh, to make it. And, of course, eight in Chinese culture and in Taiwan, too is a lucky number. Um, so hopefully we'll have uh, the good luck to have not just the chance to celebrate 40 years, but another 40 years. Um, and like all of you who are here today, I am here too because I recognize that this, uh, this relationship, once an alliance, once a formal diplomatic relationship, still a critically important relationship, uh, both to Taiwan, and I think it's important for Taiwan friends to hear, also critically important to the United States. Um, Walter asked me to talk about uh, the defense of Taiwan and Taiwan's security. Uh, I think the first uh, point to make in that conversation is always uh, that which uh, they make when you are dealing with addiction, and that is to recognize and acknowledge the problem. The problem is China. The problem is the threat posed by the People's Republic of China to the security, safety, and freedom of the 24 million people living in Taiwan. The second Analytic step, though, is where we get to, I think, what's going to be hopefully a, a part of a fun discussion here, and that is to deconstruct that threat into its uh, component parts. Uh, and I think that the way I've chosen to approach this today, Walter, is to uh, talk about uh, those non-kinetic aspects 
or, or non-military, non-violent aspects uh, and the military aspect. So uh, I thought I would start with uh, the space that I think uh, uh, Jong already kind of uh, pioneered and, and talked about a bit. Uh, but just let's uh, let's focus on the non-kinetic part first. I think it's fair to say that probably this is China's preferred approach, right? You know, China China would love to have Taiwan fall into its lap uh, without having to fight for it. Uh, I'm sure they were drooling at the prospect in the last election uh, when one of the candidates, not the one who eventually ran on the KMT's ticket, uh, certainly not the president, uh, but when Ms. Hong Xiu-ju said that uh, she had a very, very divergent perspective on Taiwan's identity and cross-strait relations, uh, I think that may be something that Dr. Lai was hinting at. Uh, and I think that Beijing continues to hope that uh, although it is increasing its ability to coerce Taiwan in a multispectral way, uh, it has not fully given up hope that it can achieve through the ballot box or through domestic means inside of Taiwan, that which it would prefer not to have to achieve by crossing the strait with military forces. Uh, and that means Beijing likes cat's paws, people who will do its bidding. It likes fellow travelers, people who think, you know, ultimately I owe some debt of uh, responsibility to the Yellow Emperor and we're all sons and daughters of Xu and Yan and whatnot, or to useful idiots who don't know anything about China and think that it's okay to try and assume leadership of uh, Taiwan without or to run in Taiwan politics for important positions without informing themselves in any meaningful way about the threat that China poses to Taiwan. And of course, Beijing also welcomes opportunists, people who think, well, you know, uh, whatever happens ultimately, uh, it, you know, I can profit off of this uh, and maybe it'll happen later and I won't be responsible or it'll, I'll be passed from the scene. And then I think a final category that Beijing finds useful in Taiwan are low information voters, people who don't pay attention to politics, people who say, I, I just want to go about my daily life. And of course, that's fair. No one is requiring anyone in any society to pay attention. But in an environment where an existential threat to your security and well-being is posed, it probably behooves most people in most societies, and especially in Taiwan, to pay very close attention uh, to what China is doing. So what has China been doing? Well, I think Dr. Lai mentioned some of China's non-kinetic steps already, right? We've seen a very substantial effort to invite people from Taiwan over to China and woo them uh, with the impression that China is the way of the future. China is a land of unlimited opportunities. Uh, and some of those opportunities are relatively recent, right? Taiwan has been offered 31 special measures from China in the last year and a half, where uh, basically if you're from Taiwan, you can enjoy preferential opportunities for economic development and personal growth if you come to China. And that's an attempt to use brain drain and to shift people's calculus of where their values and where their interests lie. And China has also used sticks, cutting off certain markets to Taiwan's exports or trying to threaten Taiwan businesses that might invest in China, that if you don't uh, go home and biao tai, if you don't go back to Taiwan and, and speak up on behalf of uh the 1992 consensus or the notion that uh, the two sides of the strait are both ultimately uh, one country, then your business in China might suffer. 
Uh, China also is quite sophisticated about leveraging openings in Taiwan's media landscape. And I think we've heard about this a bit, but it just bears saying uh, that in an era when um, media outlets are all seeking uh, any and every means to survive, uh, advertising dollars are extremely rare and China can provide a lot of them. And also providing access to the Chinese market for uh, advertising by air or by television, if, if, if possible, uh, is also a very valuable way for China to shape uh, the incentive structures facing China's uh, Taiwan's um, media outlets. Um, another way China has been pursuing this, of course, is international isolation. We've already heard Taiwan's uh, a brief discussion of the importance from the vice minister of trying to hold on to uh, Taiwan's diplomatic partners. And if I may make a brief intervention on behalf of the argument that Taiwan's diplomatic partners are not, not allies. Allies are countries that will come to your defense and that owe you something. Taiwan has 17 diplomatic partners. The United States was at one time both a diplomatic partner of Taiwan and an ally that was committed to the defense of Taiwan. Unfortunately, Taiwan today does not have any formal diplomatic allies, but it can in all likelihood, thanks in large part to the U.S. Congress and the recognition by the broad national security establishment in the United States, count on the United States to come to Taiwan's defense. Hopefully that will not happen because provided we do the right things, we can help Taiwan defend itself in such a way that Beijing will be deterred before it ever gets to that point. Um, Finally, there has been a substantial effort by China in the non-kinetic space to engage in public opinion or psychological warfare to convince Taiwanese people that there is no future in Taiwan, that Taiwan is a guaydao, an, an island with no future, of just an island of ghosts, if you will, where people can wander around just before, you know, before or after they die, I guess, probably after, uh, to engage in subversion, whether that's through uh, criminal networks in Taiwan uh, or actors who might uh, might pass information, uh, and to substantially spread disinformation via social media, uh, disinformation that suggests that the government of Taiwan is abandoning traditional values that people might still hold dear, or is planning to do things in the uh, policy space that will be detrimental to Taiwan voters, for example, by exaggerating the impact, the timing, or other aspects of the pension reform uh, issue that uh, was passed through last year. But I think it's fair to say that while China would love to have Taiwan fall into its lap and hopes to be able to weaken Taiwan, it probably does not expect ultimately that unless it gets lucky, it can actually do that. Do that. And so there is an interaction here between the non-kinetic elements of China's strategy towards Taiwan and the kinetic elements. You already heard from uh, the vice minister, one of the things that the PLA has been doing has been encircling flights and driving ships and surface action groups out past Taiwan to show that the PLA Navy can now operate to the east of Taiwan, areas where Taiwan traditionally did not have to expect or anticipate a threat coming from China. Now, carrier-based aircraft might come towards Taiwan uh, from the east, not only from across the strait. And the more that China operates in and around Taiwan, not in, uh, around Taiwan, uh, the more it can desensitize Taiwan's military and the Taiwan population 
to the presence of the PLA. And in desensitizing, it can take away the ability to for intelligence services to detect indicators and warnings that an attack might be imminent. Well, is this is this an attack? No, they, they do this every fall. They're always out sailing that way. But this time, maybe they actually are preparing something. Um, the question in the kinetic realm is, or a question in the kinetic realm, is how big a roll of the dice is China prepared to make? And what threat should and is Taiwan willing to prepare against? You know, there's basically, I think, in the security space, about three big types of uh, militarized exchanges or policy choices Beijing has to make. First, it can go at the relatively lower end. It could announce a blockade. It doesn't necessarily even have to shoot anything. It can just announce it, and that could have an enormous effect on morale in Taiwan. Uh, will countries or will private companies run a blockade? Um, you know, in such an event that China were to use a blockade, the PLA Navy, the PLA Air Force, possibly the PLA Rocket Force, uh, would be some of the key actors there. Um, another level up, if China wants to uh, really um, roll, uh, you know, the dice a bit more, is to engage in a punitive strike. And here you could imagine var- varieties of this, right? One would be kind of the lower grade version of of what China did uh, to Vietnam in 1979, a limited invasion, an attack on one of the offshore islands or on uh, Taiping Dao or something that is actually on Taiwan but is not intended to be the signal that a full-scale war has now been launched and that China is preparing an active invasion. Uh, and again, here the PLA Air Force, the PLA rocket force, and possibly a PLA's new strategic support force, which can carry out cyber attacks, might be important here. Um, the, the final possibility is, is kind of the often described as kind of the nightmare scenario. It's also the most challenging for China, and that would be to launch a full-on amphibious invasion, airborne assault, attempting to decapitate the regime in Taiwan, attempting to seize Taipei, uh, defeat the ROC's air, naval, and ground forces, occupy and completely defeat and destroy the Republic of China. Uh, a mission Beijing claims to believe it did back in the late 1940s, but obviously has not fully succeeded at yet. This would involve all services of the PLA, uh, all of the military capabilities, including its nuclear forces for deterrence to try to dissuade the United States from getting involved, to try to signal to the United States potentially that uh, if you don't involve yourself in this fight, uh, this is a fight within the family, so to speak. And so if you just stay out, we'll have no, this will not involve you and you won't have to absorb any, uh, any losses. Um, fortunately, Taiwan has been uh, shifting over the last couple of years. Uh, away from what previously was kind of a one, to, an, a, a misguided attempt to match China uh, more symmetrically. So you can think Taiwan has 24 million people and a defense budget of about $10 billion a year. That China has about 1.3 billion people, a 2 million person military and a defense budget in the open sources estimated in the 175 to $200 billion range. Um, it's very, very challenging to do what China has to do, but China has growing resources and more and more advanced capabilities, and it does not face yet any of the demographic challenges that are also increasingly afflicting uh, Taiwan. And as Michael Cole, one of the best analysts, I think, uh, out there on Taiwan would say, if you look at the morale issue, 
you know, China has effectively built up a narrative that military service, an, a militarized nation, is a strong nation. That's what you should be proud of. And it has inculcated a bit of this real aggressive nationalism. By contrast, Taiwan is exactly what you would hope a, a liberal democracy would achieve. You know, society will defend itself. People are firm about their belief in the values of their society, but they're not aggressive. They're not ir irrational. They're not out there being uh, extremely violent. Um, with that said, Taiwan has fortunately shifted in recognition of the China threat uh, away from this kind of static one-to-one, -one, you know, China gets an aircraft carrier, so we'll build some more ships. Uh, towards a much more uh, dynamic, survivable, lethal, agile force under its new overall defense concept. This is a strategy that attempts to be much more asymmetric, that attempts to not tie itself to big vulnerable things like airfields that don't move and are hard to defend, or big ports where you know where those ships have to come back to, but instead to leverage things that are smaller and more mobile. So, for example, it priv privileges uh, truck-based anti-ship cruise missiles. It favors shore defenses to destroy any PLA invasion force. It favors mines to slow down any amphibious assault as those ships might pull towards the Taiwan uh, the Taiwan coastline. It favors helicopters that could launch anti-tank missiles to destroy landing craft as they attempt to seize a beach, uh, and fast attack missile boats. Some of these, I should say, are programs that have existed before and have gotten a plus up. Many of them are newer or are receiving greater attention. And of course, Taiwan is also pursuing some approaches that are still relatively more symmetric and relatively less survivable. For example, investing a billion dollars in the next generation fighter trainer jet. That's a platform that's not going to be militarily usable in an actual conflict, although, of course, you do have to train your pilots. Uh, so, too, the argument that uh, Taiwan needs submarines is one that uh, has sometimes been framed around Taiwan needs submarines. Okay, what kind of submarines do you need? I had the uh, opportunity to pose this question to a Taiwanese interlocutor at one point and said, wouldn't Taiwan be better with a, sm a larger number of relatively smaller submarines, an argument that's been made most um, notably by some researchers here in Washington, D.C. at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And the answer was that I received back was not an operationally logical answer. It was not, you know, those don't work so well in the waters around Taiwan or they, they can't carry enough missiles. It was Taiwan is not North Korea. It was a political and an image and an identity answer. Uh, you know, an operational answer is fine, uh, but an answer that says, you know, well, we don't want to be seen as North Korea. Well, I'm, as someone who thinks about the U.S.-North Korea military balance, I'll tell you, those are a real problem. As someone who looks at South Korea a lot, I'll tell you, South Korea lost a naval corvette in 2010 to one of those mini-subs. They can certainly be quite lethal. And in terms of stopping the PLA, they can be quite valuable. Uh, so finally, I'd like to just lay out some questions that I think it might be useful for this audience to take away as they think about, you know, what, what questions need to be answered as Taiwan thinks about where its defense strategy is going to go. First is, what level of contributions are you prepared to ask of the Taiwan people? Today, Taiwan is moving towards a volunteer force. It's not fully there yet. 
Are you prepared to tell the people of Taiwan that China is a military threat, possibly an existential military threat? I think the best case for this is what's happening in Xinjiang, where there are concentration camps, and in Hong Kong, which is seeing what happens when Chinese promises are uh, allowed to uh, govern. Um, we in the United States, after 9-11, uh, you probably remember if you were there, the president didn't ask much of the American people. He said, go out and go shopping. Um, you know, we've had times when other American presidents have not done much to ask the American people to contribute. But Taiwan is in a situation now where it probably needs to clarify to the people of Taiwan that there is a serious challenge and that all of the all of Taiwan society needs to pull together and, and contribute. Um, what kind of trade-offs is Taiwan willing to make between interests in the defense industrial sector and the autonomy that that can bring, the ability to survive if even the United States were to one day cut off trade with Taiwan in military goods versus the higher cost of producing indigenously, the longer time frames and the probably lower battle, battle effectiveness of, of relatively unproven systems. Uh, and of course, there's a politics to arms purchases in Taiwan, where if a Taiwan administration can say, look, we got the Americans to run a challenge with Beijing to show that the Americans really are committed, even though they know Beijing will be unhappy about this. Uh, and there's also the fact that it's easy to point to some of the things Taiwan would like to get are big, shiny things that show up well on evening news. Not so well if you can say, you know, we invested our a billion dollars in upgrading our communications links, our tactical data systems. That doesn't show as well. Um, can Taiwan transform its domestic identity consensus, which is growing, that people in Taiwan say, first and foremost, I'm Taiwanese. I, I am a, a person of Taiwan. You know, I may have ancestors who come from China and my parents or my grandparents certainly would have said I'm, I'm Chinese and my parents might have said I'm Chinese and I'm Taiwanese. But by the third generation, all you've known is Taiwan. I mean, I, my, my grandfather came from Vienna in 1914. I don't think of myself as Austrian in any meaningful way, not at all. Uh, I think that's a natural phenomenon over time. You know, this is all I've ever known and it's all most people in Taiwan have ever known is, you know, Taiwan is my home. Uh, and that's a powerful message, but it's a message that also can carry consequences for Beijing. Beijing is watching and knows that the consensus in Taiwan over Taiwan's identity is increasingly pulling Taiwan away from a, a, a posture where Beijing might be able to woo uh, a, a generation of younger Taiwan voters to think, oh, yeah, ultimately I'm, I'm Chinese. Um, so what does the timeline look like? Another very, very critical question. You know, a few years ago, many of you may remember, there was a discussion. Is China going to invade Taiwan in 2020 or 2021? Well, if that's the case, do we see Taiwan even under a DPP administration that's been much more savvy? I mean, I can remember Michael and his colleagues coming to visit us at RAND in the 2010-2011 timeframe, trying to get the DPP really smart on defense issues. But even under a DPP administration that has prioritized Taiwan's national security more, do we see a Taiwan society today that looks like it's prepared for war six months from now or even 18 months from now? If the threat is as close as that, then Taiwan needs to be running kind of all out right now. If the threat is five years off, then now is exactly the right time to really be spinning up. If the threat's 10 years off, then maybe you got five years to get it all straightened out, get all your ducks in a row, and then start producing the hell out of some uh, very asymmetric systems. Um, what 
does that discussion about Taiwan's identity do to Xi Jinping and China's calculus? Does China think, you know, okay, uh, operationally, time's on our side. Beijing thinks, you know, economically, operationally, the gap between the ROC armed forces and the PLA is only growing. The influence China can command, perhaps with its uh, economy over Taiwan, is only growing. Uh, but on the other hand, if Beijing is more worried about what do we do if we invade, what do we do afterwards when we now own a nation of uh, 24 million angry people who, you know, don't feel like they're Chinese and feel like they're occupied, uh, they're being occupied. You know, this has been Taiwan's experience before in the late 1940s. You know, it took four and a half decades of white terror and it still ended up the authoritarian regime fell. Um, the United States has had its own difficult experiences. We didn't try and colonize or occupy either Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, but 24 million person countries, if they have some substantial subset of the population that's willing to fight, can put up a real difficult challenge for a military, even one as capable as the United States military, which is far more capable than the PLA. Um, what kind of domestic pressures is Xi Jinping operating under? This could be a real wild card. It may have nothing to do with what Taiwan is thinking about. And it's not within the control of Taiwan or the United States. Um, how much risk is Xi Jinping willing to absorb? How much risk is the CCP willing to absorb? Final questions, I think. Uh, you know, what kinds of military technologies might lie on the horizon that could rebalance the situation. You know, if, if directed energy weapons uh, become a real phenomenon that's feasible, uh, then it will be much more challenging for China to continue to effectively use its large portfolio of anti uh, of surface-to-surface uh, -surface short range ballistic missiles. It will be much more challenging for China's even China's advanced air fighters and bombers uh, to deliver munitions if Taiwan can have ground-based defenses that operate at the speed of light. Uh, if that's truly a feasible technology, and it's not clear yet if it is, but there, there, there are, you can imagine things that could change Taiwan's situation, which certainly looks potentially grim operationally right now, but may not be so forever. Um, another question, I think, if war does come, which domain is the most important? Is it, is it fighting out in the strait? Is it attriting those naval platforms and, and airships as they try to fly people and, and sail people and hardware over to Taiwan? Or is the fight primarily going to be at the beaches? Or is the fight primarily in the heads of the people of Taiwan, their will to stand up to Chinese pressure, their cohesiveness as a military and a society in the face of that uh, threat? And finally, and, and this is the one where I want to end, uh, what role will the United States continue to play in, in relation to our friends and partners in Taiwan? Will the United States continue to support Taiwan's legitimate defense needs? Will it continue to plan to deter and, if necessary, defeat uh, the Chinese armed forces? Will the United States be led in such a way that we can effectively bring along allies and partners who share our values? and convince them that if this fight were to occur, it is the critical fight for the security of the Asia-Pacific and the future of the Indo-Pacific. Will we be able to bring along, in other words, Japan, Australia, our allies in NATO? Or will the United States either cede the field or respond slowly without determination? 
I don't think that's the case. I think Walter knows better than than most probably. The Congress has this has the interests of Taiwan in mind almost all the time. As Taiwan is uh, the Taiwan Relations Act is an enormous source of pride for the Congress and should be for every administration. And I will say for the current U.S. administration, there are an enormous number of friends in high places uh, who have focused on Taiwan's security and the threat posed by the People's Republic of China to both Taiwan and the United States for many years. Uh, and so the challenge is to both uh, convince the head of the current administration that traditional values are sometimes right for a reason, and to convince any successor U.S. administration that not everything this current administration did should be tossed, even if it's of a different party. So I'll end there. Thank you so much, Walter. Great. Thank you. That was that was terrific, both of you. Um, I wanted to come back to this issue that I asked um, – I asked um, the Deputy Foreign Minister, um, Xu Xian, um, about your diplomatic allies, about Taiwan's diplomatic allies, because both of you touched on it a little bit. Um, and uh, I, it's fair to say you're absolutely right. They are not allies. They are countries that recognize Taiwan uh, as opposed to um, the PRC. Although I guess when you have no allies – you're a little bit flexible in what you choose to call uh, call an ally, um, uh, but you could argue that you know the most important relationships. Well, I mean, they think you would argue the most important relationships are with the United States and Japan and Australia and even the, uh, some European countries. Uh, much more important than Solomon Islands uh, or, or some others. And I could under I could understand. Um, so Xin has a role to play, right? You've got some countries that are maybe on the cusp, Solomon Islands being one of them, and you don't want to give a signal that, well, we don't really care about this. But but there is some question, and you also mentioned Michael Cole, and he's someone who made me think about this the most, I think, was how much value really is there? And ought Taiwan be planning for the eventuality that all of these allies will eventually leave? Um, so could each of you comment on that too? What, what exactly is the value and how do you measure that value of these diplomatic relationships? How do you measure them against um, other priorities in, in Taiwan's diplomatic outlook? Uh, Okay. Okay. If that's your preference, I'm happy to. Um, you know, I think that the uh, diplomatic partnerships that Taiwan has, first it must be said, um, many of Taiwan's diplomatic partners recognize Taiwan. Some of them recognize Taiwan for the right reasons. Uh, Oftentimes, they are encouraged to do so with what the minister noted, uh, assistance and aid programs, which are very, very generous. Taiwan is very generous, but its generosity is towards an end. It's a very legitimate end, and that is to retain recognition. There is a narrative in Taiwan society, and I have heard it previously from unnamed Taiwan officials, that uh, there is an inordinate effort by many of Taiwan's diplomatic partners to extract value from Taiwan. They know what situation Taiwan is in, and this is the real world, and we all know that countries follow their interests and rarely do things purely out of the goodness of the right values um, that they would like to see. So there is, I think... uh, it, it oversells Taiwan's diplomatic partners to call them allies. With that said, they do have value. So they speak up for Taiwan in international society. There is an enormously important morale boost to having some countries continue to recognize the ROC. Uh, it's an important 
opportunity for Taiwan to have diplomats to go abroad and have ambassadorships. And if there are none, uh, especially if Taiwan were to lose all of its uh, South America, Latin America, and Caribbean diplomatic partnerships, Taiwan currently engages in what's called stopover diplomacy. So they come, President Tsai or other leaders might come through the United States for refueling on their way to South America. That's a very useful pretext. I mean, the United States could, of course, invite or permit a Taiwan leader to come at any time. Uh, but we've kind of maintained this fiction, and it's useful to have those diplomatic partners there for that. Um, of course, on the opposite side, if Taiwan were to lose all of them, uh, this will give substantial support to those in Taiwan who say, look, at the end of the day, we've always been a different country than China. We had a different, a different experience under the Qing dynasty, which was a Manchu dynasty. It was not China. Remember, China was a colony of the Manchus at the time, and we had a different experience under Japan. And now the, the scab has been ripped off, and we have, if we literally have none, then great. Let's establish ourselves as the Republic of Taiwan, and let's ask the world to recognize us. And Beijing could treat that as a casus belli. It's not to say that it's the wrong thing to do necessarily. Taiwan gets to choose, and Taiwan has to accept some risk with choice. Uh, but that could be one of the consequences. And Beijing, I think, could conceivably be pushing it in that direction, perhaps even deliberately, thinking, you know, once Taiwan is forced to make this choice, it probably will make it. And Beijing likes psychological warfare and likes to be able to frame questions this way. You know, we're, Taiwan was being provocative. We're just forced to respond. None of the world, rec no country in the world recognizes Taiwan. So no country in the world can legitimately respond if we use force within our territory. Uh, I think that's some of the value there. But for sure, Walter, you're right. I mean, the most important relationships Taiwan has, first of all, are with its own people, its democracy. That is Michael's point, I think, is its greatest strength is its people and its values. Second is with the United States. Third is Japan and then other countries out from there. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> of course, I think that the um, sometimes you uh, compare with those uh, smaller states of Taiwan diplomatic partnership. Uh, official diplomatic partnership with the uh, United, uh, stronger country like United Japan, India, and Australia. <clears throat> it's a little bit unfair comparison. Um, but I, I, I tended to uh, look at this uh, in terms of uh, some of the uh, operational uh, advantage that uh, those diplomat diplomatic, not allies, but partners, they can provide to Taiwan. I just gave some examples because none of them uh, has been widely discussed, but it was uh, employed in Taiwan. Um, Taiwan is not, uh, we just cannot enter United Nations. But our diplomatic partners, uh, they are part of the UN. And uh, for some of the UN meeting, it's actually that we are able to go through our diplomatic partners, so to have our people to be able to witness and uh, uh, experience what the UN and its operations all about, and sometimes even uh, help them to write something they deem that's important to them, but also help us to gain experience. So that's one thing. And it happened in some of the smaller Pacific Island states, especially when you, uh, I think this uh, experience and uh, expertise, sometimes that's very important. When you look at Taiwan, uh, the last uh, the diplomat in Taiwan, they have the experience in the UN, uh, retired in year 2003. So right now, from year 2000 onward, uh, our whole diplomats, we have a whole diplomat group that have zero experience in any kind of those important international multilateral meetings. 
and not uh, not to speak about the uh, um, the kind of network as well as the uh, resources and also the international operational norm associated with it. And uh, if you look at the, us and many of the younger Taiwan diplomats, they probably uh, have very little experience in the real, the so-called real multilateral organization networking and operations. Uh, any of them, many of them, they just tended to look at the multilateral, uh, the bilateral relationship. So there's a big uh, lack of experience in that area. And for that, the diplomatic um, partners, uh, they provide uh, the vehicle for us to, to get on board. Of course, uh, the, uh, that does not mean that in other uh, countries, uh, uh, that's irre they are so irreplaceable that uh, they can only fill the function. For if, for example, United States or Japan or other countries uh, is willing to give, for example, our youngsters uh, the kind of intern for them to be part of the UN missions, and then for them to understand how this is actually working, and also to un uh, to uh, get the the personal those feeling about what the norm should be all about, that could also be helpful. Another thing is that uh, those diplomatic partners, uh, they also pre uh, provide uh, another pretext in addition to the so-called stopover diplomacy. Um, the, uh, those diplomatic partners, they are eligible to uh, invite other in, uh, countries' leaders or the uh, diplo uh, diplomats or senior uh, officials uh, to then to participate in certain meetings. How about our foreign minister? Uh, if the, he wanted to meet some of the uh, uh, un uh, the country's leader, and uh, he needs to meet with him uh, or her uh, to discuss certain things. Uh, the, the, our diplomatic partners, uh, the location and, and how they, uh, as a mediator, to initiate the platform for the dialogue, uh, sometimes it's important to us. And also, uh, diplom uh, our diplomatic partners uh, also could uh, help us to uh, initiate a certain uh, multilateral, uh, multilateral forum in which that will boost on our international networking and contact with other countries that usually we just cannot get in touch with. Okay, so the, uh, uh, the uh, loose of our diplomatic partners uh, did operationally will cause some of the um, uh, inconvenience as well as more complexity and difficulty for our multilateral as well as the bilateral engagement with other countries, which uh, we normally just cannot be able to associate with. Many of those bilateral relations, if you look at Taiwan diplomacy, uh, we had to go through various, very difficult and uh, um, strange um, unofficial channels. And that also uh, put Taiwan to, to be suspected of the international um, uh, hackings uh, of the, some of the, uh, the the people they are just uh, try to hack Taiwan for uh, because I know you you have the need uh, for those engagements so I'm going to charge you more. So those are the things that if you uh, sit on the uh, bench and in Taiwan uh, look at all the uh, in diplomatic operations, uh, yeah, those diplomatic outside allies now uh, they provide some of these things that that's need for us. Very thorough uh, thinking through of that. Is it is, any other questions? Uh, let me let me get this gentleman down front. Hi, um, I'm, my name is Eric, and I'm with Project Twenty Forty Nine. 
And I had a question about disinformation. I mean, Scott, you mentioned um, social media. I think it's pretty rampant, circular reporting. There's traditional media and the whole media landscape in general. Um, undoubtedly, it's going to step up with elections coming up as well. And my question is, with the noted um, PLA involvement and this whole whole of government, state, party, military-directed political warfare, what can the United States and what can Taiwan do to counter disinformation within the media landscape? Not just responding to um, individual cases, but from an organi organizational um, perspective. Like, what... What organizations should we be looking out for? Where is it coming from, and how do we how do we combat it in, in general? Wow. So it's an extremely difficult question, and I think it's evident from our last election and the period that we've had since then that the United States is itself still grappling with this, as are many European countries, as is Australia, as is uh, New Zealand. Uh, not all with respect to the same country. Uh, us with Russia, Europeans with Russia. New Zealand, uh, Australia, Taiwan, uh, more with China. Uh, I think there, are, you know, it, it's helpful to disaggregate this into a number of uh, discrete avenues to think about. One is uh, raising public awareness and building public consensus that this is a real issue. It's not something where the government's making it up or an opposition party that lost an election is just engaging in sour grapes. Uh, another approach may be uh, legislative. Uh, I will say I, I've talked to people in Taiwan who say, you know, and, and I think you heard it from the vice minister today, you know, there, there's a discussion about the law, but there's also a fear, especially for this government, I think, because this is the government of the party that struggled for and helped with Taiwan society's support to build and force democratization in Taiwan. Uh, and there's a feeling of, you know, we can't betray our legacy. We can't go back. We'll be accused of being uh, authoritarian or high-handed or heavy-handed or whatever. Uh, and I think, you know, I, the, res the correct response to that may be something like, you know, look, in the United States, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. In Germany, you can't advocate Nazism. In South Korea, I, I think that's still true today in South Korea, you can't uh, openly advocate for North Korea uh, and unification under North Korea. Uh, so I think there are ways that societies, free societies that want to defend themselves and are threatened by authoritarian societies that are happy to use their freedoms against them can do so, uh, but it requires running a bit of political uh, cost. Uh, there may be technology uh, angles where using AI to identify fakes or to quickly flag to people that this – this story has already been debunked, and if it shows up in your line feed or, your, or you see it on PTT, it's not, you know, it's not true. Um, there is a role for Taiwan civil society, which is quite strong. Uh, although it's the the actors in Taiwan civil society that are working in this space are quite small and underfunded. Um, there uh, are probably other ways. I'm sure intelligence sharing. Uh, there is a rapid, I think the government of Taiwan has a fairly rapid response. In fact, I will tell you, if you talk to Taiwan government officials, you'll hear a number of different timelines along which they have to respond. Anything less than 48 hours is too late. Anything less than 48 hours, you've got to do it in 20 hours. 12 hours. The news cycle in Taiwan is six hours. It's like you, you, you get down to like, if we haven't responded by the time, you know, the second person pushes it off their, their, uh, Twitter feed or whatever, it's too late. I think the reality is by the time it enters the mainstream media, which is where kind of social media pushes the, the traditional media landscape, by the time it's being discussed on traditional media, it probably has already circulated 
long enough. But some of the some of the technologies are also important there. You know, some are closed discussion groups, and some of them are open. You know, you can think here if I have to invite the twenty five people in this room to discuss it. And it doesn't spread outside of the 25 people in this room. Well, sorry, all of you are important people in Washington, D.C., I'm sure. But if you want to affect this country, you got to spread it to, you know, a few million people. And it's a bit akin to a, a virus. You know, if a virus is extremely lethal and burns itself out quickly or it saturates the people who will believe it but doesn't spread out and gain legitimacy, then it's not so effective. Whereas if it spreads on a bigger platform, it can be more so. Yeah, I would say that uh, definitely the intelligence sharing is very important. And I personally would believe that uh, if uh, we do believe that Chinese influence operation, not just on Taiwan, but also on other countries, that is uh, the global phenomenon that we need to collectively deal with it. First of all, the five I need to have a set um, uh, mechanism, uh, how to communicate with each other and to address uh, this uh, Chinese uh, intelligence operation. And also those five, probably uh, we need to wider dialogue with, uh, by inviting Taiwan as well as Japan. Japan source seems to be a little bit successful story in encountering those. Uh, but there's also India, uh, which is also uh, in the, uh, at the beginning of, could be uh, bombarded, but uh, could also and have a way to deal with it. Like those countries altogether, at least we can discuss at least, and share an, our experience. Another thing about it is that uh, when we talk about the uh, social media and the traditional media, first about social media. Um, when uh, yes, uh, Scott is correct that uh, many of the uh, fake news uh, or those rumors they first echo within this close group, and then through those close groups, started to uh, spread out to others. Then uh, our problem about dealing with the uh, the issue or the fake account, especially in the social media, is that none of them, those social media uh, company, is willing to have a real dialogue with Taiwan. Uh, line group, um, for example, so, yeah, line is very important uh, vehicle for in the social media, especially from those uh, about the fake news. But um, uh, we were able to get to the line uh, ad uh, agreeing to set up a uh, fact check uh, uh, portion of it, but then it's so uh, reactive and not being very uh, proactive in dealing with things. And also, how about the fake accounts in the Facebook? Um, about Chinese, will Facebook deal with those? And when we talk to them, are they going to deal with it? And I think uh, for the United States, uh, some of the companies, uh, they are located, uh, they are uh, US company or Japanese company. I think that foreign government, uh, they can communicate with us, especially on this part, how to really get the foreign, uh, those uh, social media uh, corporate uh, vehicles uh, to really be on board as a partners to fight against the fake news, and right now it hasn't happened yet. And the third thing about the our uh, the uh, mainstream newspapers, yes, it is true in my view that the seventy five percent of our print as well as electronic media right now is either under direct Chinese uh, influence or strong Chinese influence. Uh, but the thing is that well, we just cannot treat those uh, Taiwan media environment as this is a free market, because we do know that China provide free. Uh, film or free images and everything to a certain Taiwan TV stations in order to boost their competitiveness in Taiwan. And also know that the uh, China was able to, through their advertisement uh, deal, way back in China, through Taiwan businessmen to help a certain the Taiwan TV station and to uh, 
fight against others' uh, TV station or the uh, newspaper that do not agree with them. So that's uh, I think right now the uh, the issue uh, is how how are able to involve the international um, forces uh, in here and try to rebalance it. And another thing is that the uh, um, we do notice that like uh, Financial Times as well as uh, uh, Nikkei as uh, New York Times, they started to have their own Chinese. Um, the English as well as the Chinese versions, and how are you able to amplify and get those and uh, let them play a bigger role in terms of the reporting to balance against the Chinese propagandas? Uh, that is another uh, important vehicle probably we could uh, explore. Thank you. Well, please join me in thanking both our panelists uh, for their terrific <laughs> discussion, and uh, this adjourns the program. Thank you very much.